he's gonna he's gonna see those two as comprising almost an order unto themselves, which is called reality, and he's going to oppose reality to the real with a capital R. There's objects we desire. There's things that we th sit around and think, oh, if I could just be married to a person like this, or if I just had a house that with certain things in it, right? Or if I had that car, or if I had that job, right? There's things that we are aware that we desire, the objects of desire. And the objects of desire, we're aware of at a conscious level, or at least a pre-conscious level. Uh, there's no, there's no surprise. Like, yes, I, I think about that thing. I desire that thing. I'm pursuing that thing. I want that thing. But the, the unconscious aspect of desire is objet petit a, which is the cause of desire. Intersectionalization of of the libidinal uh, forms of energy of, of of your desire of your interests of, of of all of these different things, like they become you. And so, a new symbolization, like has time energy at its center and it says we need a new symbolic existential structural like way of thinking and talking about everything and i don't know if i'm doing a very good job explaining it but that's kind of what I, that's what it's about <laughs> i still think the fundamental like the the core issues we as human beings are facing are of time energy appeals. That's my, my whole thing is I want my time energy. Liberal leftists, but I'm fucking over it, dude. I'm so fucking over people trying to dignify projects. The, the humanist thread that gets lost from from the from the values, questions, and concerns of young Marx that found the entire critique of political economy and what comes later um, is is for me mostly find yourself find find your find a job that gives you meaning you know you'll you'll give back some then you'll be able to consume and eventually die well it is there's a lot of things left out of that picture and okay, I'd like well, this is where I'm actually getting worked out you want me to be my fucking best self capitalism good give me money and no fucking wage theory please and we are joined by a face. Who's that? The Letter seven announcing hashtag for he Mikey and a lot Wait, more. What's, what's playing? What did that? I don't know. What did you do? Did you hear that? Yeah. Oh. I have. Oh, you know what? A different video started playing. Read in the, the background. Oh, uh, my next video yeah, started playing. Reader. Yeah, my. How's your day going? It's going. All right. Got to do a little review of. Uh, this lecture I wrote, considering how how little we got through last time, like damn, I did not plan to uh, make an, uh, a lecture this long, but we'll get through as much of it as we can. Cool. I mean, I've I've got a couple of concerns here. Anne just says, "Okay, this intro is epic." Thanks, Anne. Good to see you. What's um, up, Anne? I'm a little worried about the internet connection where I'm at. I'm going to be perfectly honest. Um, I'm just outside of a building that I got locked outside of. I was I, I pay for access to this building and it has a high-speed internet inside of it. But for some reason, my code's not working and I'm not sure if they changed something. So I emailed the coordinator lady like two hours ago. I still haven't gotten a response. So here I am. And uh, Anne said, wait, we actually get to see Michael's face? <laughs> I know. It, it won't be forever, Anne. 
Uh, I'm just popping in to make an appearance. I'm not a pure voice. <laughs> I'm not a disembodiment. I, I do. I, I'm a subject of embodiment. It's great. And the Swole Terry's in the chat. Welcome, Swole. Swole says, What's up, Swole? Swole says, LOL. He said something about Ukraine, didn't he? Now, Swole was Hey, saying, where'd that comment go? <laughs> Yeah, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. So somebody had commented on this and said that Zizek is just some shill for NATO. And obviously that must that's two separate things, obviously. And then let's just even just imagine really quick that in this person's universe that they're not confused and that they actually are correct. Just, and, hold on, just restate that briefly because the, the, the important point you were making you cut out on. Just make sure people hear it. Well, which part? You, you were explaining, okay, Zizek said something in support of NATO, the guy had a problem with it, and then you cut out for a second. Oh, I was going to say, let's just imagine that that person isn't confused and actually understands everything, and that that's actually true, that Zizek supports NATO. Um, yeah. Who fucking cares? So here's – and then I just had I, – I, I shared something on Facebook that that had nothing to do really with Zizek, but I had the meme where it's his face and it says I'd prefer not to. And then someone gets mm -hmm. in the comments and is like very concerned being like I heard that Zizek is like – uh, one of the editors over at Compact Magazine and that I heard that they're like Red Browns over there. And it's just the same thing again. If it's true, I still, it doesn't change anything. Like I, I'm committed to understanding great thinkers and, and their, their opinions on geopolitics um, or, yeah. or, or how they apply that stuff politically is a different universe of thinking set apart from what I call... So if Zizek supports NATO in some way, what is that? That refutes everything he says in Sublime Object? Right. And that or, was my... You know, we, can throw, we can throw a ticklish subject and less than nothing. We can commit him to the flames because right. he said something supportive of NATO, the, I guess. Yep. I think we should definitely burn his books now. Uh, this one right yeah. here? Yeah. All 50 of them have to fucking go. To, I've got my lighter. Let's let's burn, roll it up and burn it. Um... Yeah, but you know this. This is a typical said or Zizek as a thinker from that one statement, whether or not the statement's true or not. Like that doesn't matter. But you haven't cut out, cut out in the last couple minutes. All right. Well, and if it gets to be too uh, bad, you have a couple on your end. It's just that Anne said that she'll give me her hot her hotspot if I need it. Well, if you have, if, I, if I need it, then you got to bring it to me, and I I'm just gonna stop paying attention to it for the time being and act as though everything works. So what I wanted to say about that person's stupid comment is that, that I responded to it and I said I said I said basically what you just said. Oh, let's just commit all of his theory to the flames then because I because you disagree with his geopolitical opinion, and yeah. And then I and then I, I did it in quotes though. I was like quoting the person saying we should just disregard him as a thinker. And then I I quoted mm -hmm. the guy saying he was dumb fuck Jones. And so then he deleted his comment. And now now people are gonna be like, oh you're bullying. No, you know what's bullying? You know what's fucking bullying? Is this anti-intellectual fucking stupidity on the part of everyone I know who's just so willing to dismiss a thinker because oh they're dead. Oh, they had an opinion I don't like. 
okay? And you have never had an original thought in your life, you fucking idiot. Anyway, so welcome. Welcome to the stream. We're trying to think. We're, we're getting this Dave today. Yeah, you are getting this this Dave today. I guess the only thing I'll say about my, my rant is I'm just fucking tired of people um, wanting to treat uh, this, what we're doing here, which is actually very difficult, wanting to treat it as though it's easy and is something that is reducible to politics. And I think that if you're... A, a way of uh, an analyzing everything is, oh, how does this fit into what I believe right now? Um, then you're mm -hmm. an idiot. And I don't think you're worth my time. I don't think you're worth your own time. And I think you should probably try to do better. So anyway, let's, uh, let's reorient really quick. I guess the one thing I want to no. say before we, we dive in, we'll have to do a quick little recap of the notes from last time. Um, and that's just to say, look, if you're joining right now and you are playing... Uh, video games go ahead and put a one in the chat you know I understand you don't you don't want to sit there and type a lot if you're playing video games right now put a two in chat if you're at work and if uh, if you if it's neither but you're gonna be AFK do at some point say hello that's how you say no to alert culture is by uh, at least introducing yourself and saying hey thanks for doing this we're listening in um, that's nice of you to do that we really appreciate it and then as far as anybody who's trying to make this into an educational experience um, take notes write down quotes paraphrase things in your own words uh, even replay parts of the stream and then just speed it up to catch up again and if you and then uh, as people come into this chat later on we will be reminding them Start over at the beginning, play it from the beginning, speed it up, and catch up because uh, we are doing this on YouTube. And so, taking notes, uh, paraphrasing quotes, replaying parts, also coming back to this in the future, these are all just parts of it. And uh, some of those notes that you end up taking, some of those paraphrases you end up making, some of those quotes that you end up doing should be shared into the actual comments of this video in the future if you're serious. So, please do that. We appreciate it. So, uh, the theory, I, I love what you're doing. Like, that was so cool. You did, uh, timestamps over on Todd's video. That was great. Yeah. Thanks so, for doing big that. Up. So, so what are we yeah, I kind of just want to pick up where I left off. Yeah. There was a brief. 10 second disconnect i mean look we're just gonna have to go with it and if it's a little choppy then okay but otherwise we'll just keep it going so we left off i was kind of i was talking about these two key points in gzx theory of ideology which is ideology ends up creating reality minus the traumatic real that secretly and virtually structures society. We are also talking about how, like this, our, our our everyday spontaneous reality is itself ideological, which means it goes ideology goes much further down than Marx understood. It's not a, a simple mistake in misconception or misrepresentation of reality. Ideology is reality itself. And it takes a sort of special form of critique, a special form of, of thinking to even be able to 
see that reality itself is ideology. So, and then that's the whole point of the they lives example, John Carpenter's great film with the, the glasses. Like the point is like, you have to have some supplemental aid to be able to perceive reality as ideological. It's not, uh, reality is not like a spontaneous, accurate relationship to states of affairs as they are basic default setting. It's not a, it's not a strategy in misrepresentation where we, we end up making a mistake in how we think about things. It is our fundamental orientation towards the world in a kind of default mode. And so we're thoroughly invested in ideology precisely because it's our default relationship to the world instead of some augmentation or divergence from an accurate relationship to the world. So ideology is the default. And so that's why it's so hard to free ourselves from it. And Zizek makes this point in Herbert's Guide to Ideology in his discussion of They Live. And They Live contains a very long fight scene. And it's almost, it's excessive. You're like, how long is this fight scene going to last? It's probably one of the longest fight scenes in a film. Um, especially a fight scene just between two guys, not a bunch of guys. Um, so you go, well, why is, it, why is the scene so long? And Zizek's point is that the length of the scene, the excess of the scene, is stating this is how hard it is to free ourselves from ideology and to actually see things truthfully. So that's what he likes about the, the long duration of the scene. So, okay, I'm going to quickly pivot into another point. And if I had gotten to this point in the last lecture, it would have felt more natural because it, okay. it seems like, well, why, why are we pivoting to this? But think of ideology and in my opinion, they're much more similar than they are different, but I think it just helps to understand how the two of them would differentiate themselves on the topic of ideology. So the key here is to understand what both of them have in mind when they refer to universality. Well, for Slavoj, the universal or the universal position has to do with the structural antagonism in a society, which we talked about last time. So for for and, Zizek, and, and and we were talking about how there are real structural antagonisms, and the point of ideology is to overcode or sort of give a different sort of interpretation for what's going on with those antagonisms in a way that either makes those antagonisms go away or puts it onto some scapegoat. You use the example of Jewish people. I use the example yeah. of Russia or something like that. Yeah, perfect. Okay. So here's the point. This is an opportunity to reword it in a way that hopefully will help. So when you think of the universal position, universality, or when you think of the structural antagonism or the social symptom, this is the position of the real. This is... Oh, yeah. And so ideology doesn't want us to find this main nerve of society precisely because the main nerve of society involves a certain antagonism, structural antagonism, conflict. Uh, 
something that makes the society possible, but also makes it impossible, which the thing that makes it capable of functioning is also the thing that can destroy it or undermine it. Zizek's example is the proletariat for capitalist society to function. You got to have the you got to have wage labor, but at the same time, it's the wage laborer proletariat that can undermine the very society it makes possible. So that's why he also likens the proletariat to the symptom of capitalist society, because it, it functions like how an individual symptom does in the clinic. So, um, insofar as the individual symptom. If somebody goes into analysis and they're dealing with the symptom, they act like the symptom is some foreign intruder, some foreign thing, when in reality, that symptom is like a uh, coded message of their, their subjectivity, of their desire. And so it's actually the hard kernel of them, yet it's perceived as this externality. And so the point is... Um, it's a condition of possibility and impossibility. And so that's what Zizek's doing. He's taking the concept of the symptom as developed by Lacan, and he's applying it to society as a whole and saying society itself has its own symptoms. And so, yeah, so for Zizek in the position of universality, and okay, so I should say something here. Zizek is inspired by Hegel's concept of universality. It's not the concept of universality philosophy uh, philosophers typically have in mind. It's a somewhat strange concept of universality, but both Slavoj and Todd have this Hegelian concept of universality in mind whenever they're talking about can, it, for the can, most part. Can, can I say a couple of things really quick? Because I just sure. know that a lot of people are like, so what, why, why, what, what's the point of all of this universality talk? There's a couple of things about universality. First of all, some would say you're not even doing philosophy if you're not thinking in the universal. And then second of all, critical theory has preoccupied itself with critiquing the universal or people's attempts to take up the position of a subject able to think in the universal. Uh, and, and the kind of go-to identity politics example is just that you know at the moment that you think that you've stepped outside of your particularity and that you are thinking in the universal say it's logic or something like and you're being very logical about the issue um, you probably actually bring a lot of your particularity into the analysis and and so and it says and it's particularly easy for people who are representative of the majority um, or, or not very marginalized by the society to to think that they are doing a universal sort of project or analysis but it's actually excluding people and that's the general line of critique against the universal and that's something that Todd McGowan in his book on identity politics is he's gonna argue for a different kind of universality um, mm -hmm. but you're saying that there's a that, that universality has a function or it has an important role to play in ideology and the theories of subjectivity and ideology in all three of these thinkers for right. McGowan so and Gigi. Here's, here's what we've got. Well, Hegel, and Hegel. Slavoj, and Todd. Okay. okay, so here's what we've got. So if the symbolic order or the social order is, let's just call it society, right? It's easy to say, well, the universal is society. It's the, it's the big other or it's the general way of things, right? 
what Hegel did is say, no, the universal, when we're talking in societal terms, the universal is actually that which is excluded from society. It's not the gener general truce of that society. It's the space of exclusion. What that society either excludes, the type of person it excludes, or it could simply be something that it is impossible for this society to do. A, stru like a structural deadlock is a conflict. It's something it can't fix, right? So whether we're talking about a structural antagonism or, as Todd would Todd does a universal lack. The position of universality is very much the a position in the real, because it is precisely what is excluded from the symbolic order, um, and so this is this is the kind. This is basically the difference between Zizek and McGowan. So here's the point: uh, they are not far apart since both would say that university uh, universality is not mastery i.e the overarching power structure of society a lot of leftists tend to think the universal in that way like you were talking about like the universal is the overarching structure uh, of power and domination in society but for a hegelian it's precisely what ex escapes or is excluded from that overarching structure and so for Slavoj, the universal is identified with the structural, fundamental antagonism of society, whereas for Todd, the universal is a lack, the missing or absent signifier. And so what Todd means is that not just a structural conflict built within the social order, it's something that all of us lack, right? Now, you would immediately it, it should catch your attention because you're sitting there go well what we universally all lack Reggie. and you so off, you cut that would be an second. example so you're saying time energy yeah and you're saying time energy would be a good example of that right 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 because is that not something we all collectively lack that's excluded from Absolutely. the social order as a whole and i would just add because ann said in the chat the universal is what's excluded from the symbolic order i'm not sure if that makes sense to me haha and and you haven't caught up on the last stream, and we're not going to beat this dead horse, but I will just say that what he's referencing is the triadic uh, registers in the Lacanian uh, theory where mm -hmm. you've got the real, you've got the symbolic, and you've got the imaginary. The imaginary is basically just the way that things appear. The symbolic is basically just the way that uh, things are get ordered, you know, roughly speaking. And then uh, the real is whatever's left out by those other two categories. And that also mm -hmm. means that the real in the spectacle or, you know, made apparent, made visible. Um, so artists and philosophers mm -hmm. are always trying to broach the real in new ways, broach the real in new ways. Um, because if there are structural deadlocks in the real that allow society to keep operating the way that it does and... For instance, the fact that nobody has time energy, but that's what everybody ultimately needs to be able to do any of the things that people actually say that they value, then uh, figuring out a way to talk about that and to address that uh, is the precondition to any kind of uh, emancipatory project or mass reorchestrating of society.
good stuff. And so, I mean, you can think about it. You can think of time energy as in the real because as of right now, it's impossible. Yes, there are exceptions. Don't let that, like if you can point to one person who has their time energy in society, it doesn't change the fact that it's still a universal impossibility or a universal lack. Um, right. It, like one exception doesn't, oh, see, it's not absolutely universal universally that's not how they're talking here um it's also not and, even it's not even what i mean by the concepts you got to go read my book now if you think that so yeah i also want to say hi to brian weeks i just saw he's in the chat brian what's up so and, and this will help too when philosophers talk about the universal they also often have in mind universals like platonic forms right which are pure essences or pure ideas and again, that is not what Hegel has in mind when talking about universality. Um, so we have to realize when we're talking about universality, we're using it in this very technical Hegelian sense. But obviously Zizek and McGowan as Hegelians, that's what they primarily have in mind when they're using it. So then, um, so for Todd, like what, every, what unite, unites everybody is a shared lack something that is impossible for the existing social order to provide them. Whereas for Slavoj, it's being on the right side of a social antagonism slash symptom. So it, it, occupying the position of the universal for Slavoj would be taking the side of the proletariat. And we'll get to that in a second. So um, this, however, seems to force Slavoj to, Slavoj to hold that there will always be an antagonism as long as there is a society Todd obviously thinks that there will always be lacks and contradictions within society, but not necessarily structural antagonism of the class struggle variety. So that's one of the differences is that I think when Todd says the universal is lack, it has a, a broader application than Slavoj saying the universal is a structural antagonism. We can say that there's more structural lack than there are or more structural lacks than there are structural antagonisms but again here's the thing both of them are talking about things that are in the real so either way um whether we're talking about the universal is antagonism or the universal is lack we're still talking about the universal is in the real okay so there's a similarity there all right and so just for some more context here, because antagonism is such an important concept for Slavoj and, and sublime object all the way up. <clears throat> so the big question for Slavoj would be getting him to explain how he conceptualizes the difference between antagonism, which involves an ex external split, and contradiction, which involves an internal split. So the idea is that class antagonism you, ha you have an external split in the sense of, yes, you wouldn't have proletariats without capitalists, and yet at the same time, they are, they are in a, a struggle against one another, and there's another sense where you can say, yeah, but the proletariat is not the capitalist. So there, there's a sense in which, yes, the capitalist structural position in society dialectically depends on the position of the proletariat and vice versa 
but there's an important sense that Marx emphasizes where it's like, yeah, but there's also a radical split. They're, they still stand in a kind of external relationship to one another. Um, and so it, this is the idea of antagonism is it involves this external split where, yes, the, there's a structural conflict, but one side is trying to undermine the other side, right? Um, and you also have to think of them as external to one another while understanding they're also dialectically dependent on one another. Right. Interdependent. Okay. Yeah. And so, really right. quick, so if it's outside, if, if it's like the, you know, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, then it would be, you, this is a structural, oh, it's antagonistic then in that case. Not the same thing as contradiction. A contradiction would be internal, you're saying. Exactly. And so, the great example that comes to mind, I always like to use, first off, I want to say hi to Stephen Clausen. He's here again. Good to see you here. Yeah, what's up? What's up, Warren? Welcome. I, I yep. hope everyone's enjoying the meme reel on the top right. I, I know that that's uh, it's it's been an evolving thing that I've been doing. Um, I made like seven personalized ones for this stream specifically. If you're listening to this on the podcast version, though, don't you worry. You'll eventually hear us say everything that those things have to say. Some of them are just like PSAs, like reminders, like, for instance, don't PhD learners between the ages of 22 and 44. And so... That's, that's you know, people at work, people gaming, multitaskers, ADHD, and so we have learning tips and stuff like that, but we'll go over it all eventually anyway. I just wanted to draw people who are watching live, draw their eyeballs' attention to that, and hey, don't worry about getting distracted. That's the point that I was just making. So anyway, get back to it. So, so yeah, it's just important to realize there is an external relationship. Capitalists are not proletariats. They just also have a dialectical interdependence on one another, too. The, the internal conflict would be when a thing itself is simply contradictory within itself, right? So this is what Hegel provides us with throughout the whole trajectory of phenomenology of spirit. We'll start with sense certainty because it, it, I think it's the easiest mode of consciousness to see this. So you know the basic idea that people present of Hegel's dialectic is you have a thesis, you have an antithesis, then you have a synthesis, right? Well, the idea is like, okay, so you start with this one thing and then you go to its opposite thing. And then those two things combine. And then that new thing that is the combination of the two things now finds its opposite. And then they combine and Todd and Todd, especially, but also Gigi, I mean, they, they, have spent a good majority of their intellectual careers critiquing the thesis synthesis, uh, the, the thesis antithesis synthesis triad. And when you read Hegel, that was always one of the problems I had reading Hegel. I was, I was always trying to make each mode of consciousness fit that schema, and they don't. Because here's what's going on since certainty is internally split, the reason it gets undermined is not because it can, it, it, it ends up opposed to another mode of consciousness. Say it's not like sense certainty and perception are opposed and then they morph into understand. That's not what's going on. The whole point is that sense certainty is internally contradictory. It's internally split within itself. And so sense certainty is trying to reach the certainty of 
knowing its object. So anything, I'm surrounded by books right now. Um, I'm looking at a copy of Mark Fisher's Capitalist Realism. So I would say this is this, right? Like I want to point at it and say this, like I'm naming its particularity. I'm getting at its raw singularity by pointing at it and saying this. That's what sense certainty wants to know. It wants the certainty of knowing an object in its brute singularity, right? But of course, here's the problem. In the domain of language, when I look at it and say this, this is actually the most universal concept. I can say this of everything that exists. This, so in no way am I... No, go ahead. This, this, there, that. Uh, Here, you know, now. Here, now, exactly. And there can also mean... I, or, you. Then, yeah. These are all mm -hmm. just universal placeholders, yeah. Yeah, and so... In trying to speak, to, to, to know with certainty, the, have knowledge of this particular... I'm not even trying to state, oh, I have a copy of Mark Fisher's book. I'm trying to speak the singularity of this copy of Capitalist Realism. In trying to speak its singularity, I speak its universality. And so the, the mode of sense certainty is itself contradictory or self undermining it's internally split between the intent of speaking particularity and the actuality of speaking universality yeah and so the contradiction is within itself and it's through this that it opens up oh okay i've reached a structural deadlock what i'm doing internally fails well okay maybe Maybe I get the particularity of the thing through incorporating its universal qualities. So that is what perception is. It's the failure or deadlock of sense uh, certainty that gets us to viewing the object in a new way, which is it, perception. But it's not a synthesis. Yeah, and it'd be similar if you were like, you know... I like to wake up early and I see myself as the kind of person who goes to bed and then wakes up early. But I also keep staying up really late and then sleeping in, right? Well, this is a contradiction, right? And, and sorting through that contradiction, um, it, you might turn out to be someone who uh, approaches these things differently once you've conceptualized or made up some sort of way of you've symbolized you've symbolized it once you've kind of made sense of your situation like for me it was kind of realizing oh I have a bunch of baggage from old jobs I used to work where I had these kind of determinate deadlines and and I had anyway just the point is is that we have our own inner contradictions we're working through when it comes to the way that we identify with certain things and that it is thinking those things through that leads to what we call a more examined life. Yeah. So, you know, it's great you, you brought this example in. This is Hegel's key point, though, when he says not only as substance, but also as subject. The point is, is, okay, philosophers have no problem granting that human beings are contradictory beings. Subjectivity is contradictory. We contradict ourselves all the time. We find ourselves, now, of course, psychoanalysis comes in concept of death drive and really fleshes this out right but everybody has an i you know 
a default understanding of how human beings are inconsistent with themselves. And so it's easy to just say, well, human subjects are contradictory. They have internal splits. But what Hegel's doing with his ontology is he's saying this is true of reality itself. Reality itself is self-contradictory or internally split. And so this is why Zizek uses the paradoxes from quantum mechanics to illustrate not only as substance, but also as subject, that being itself or reality itself is also based on inconsistencies, contradictions. And so this is what a dialectical ontology would be um, in the Hegelian sense. So basically he's saying just like human beings, subjects are contradictory, objects also are internally divided. And so, yeah, that's uh, that was a good – I'm glad you brought yourself into it. Yeah, it is. This is a deadlock I'm still working through. The my actual sleeping patterns, that's the real. <laughs> yeah, there could be yeah. So um okay, so remember Slavoj's concept of antagonism was developed and influenced by Laclau and Moofs or Mafa, I'm not sure how to pronounce the name, but uh their book Hegemony and Socialist Strategy this book had a really profound impact on Slavoj's thinking, had a big influence on what he does in Sublime Object of Ideology and going forward in his other works. And uh, they, they were concerned with a generalized antagonism beyond class antagonism that permeates the entire social field. And so I, I'm not very familiar with their work, but the idea is that society itself is internally split like we're talking about or you know it, in, in internally antagonistic and that this internally split social order in all of its various particularity um it all this this, this structural built-in antagonism finds itself in various forms of antagonism class racial antagonisms uh, gender antagonisms all of these different forms of antagonisms are manifestations or incarnations of a grander, more structural antagonism. And now you're going to sit there and go, well, what is it? I'm not really sure. They act, As far as I understand, they just act like somehow the social order itself is antagonistic. This is something I need to know better. But I know that this, this idea of a generalized antagonism influenced Slavoj. So I, sk I skimmed that book one time. So listen to my criticism of those authors and everything they've ever done. Just kidding. I, I, yeah, I, didn't, I, I did. Have you read? Yeah, yeah, enough to where I actually think I could tell you. I actually have some real criticisms of the way that not not of their thinking, but of the way that they get pre presupposed by a lot of people. But I don't want to get into it too much because I actually would want to reread it a little more carefully before I ever did such a thing. Well, I think, I mean, as far as I understand, they're post-Marxists who are trying to figure out how to still be Marxists in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. And I, and, okay. and, you know, and, and, uh, the problems they're dealing with are real problems and, uh, they, you know, I think they give it a real go. So, um, but uh, you know, we'll, we'll deal with that book some other day. 
Okay, so... Um, Swole, I don't know what you mean. Hold on. Everyone in the chat, for all future time, I need to make one of my little stream reminders so that everyone is always reminded of what I'm about to say. But if you say something in chat, you need to say... So, for instance, if you say, if you say isn't that Freud's thing, which is what Swole said, and Swole, sorry for being my example, but you're going to be my example here. Isn't that Freud's thing? That is a universal placeholder. We were just talking about this. The word that means everything and anything. You have to tell us what you mean. People in chat do this all the time. They'll be like, they're responding to something that we say, and then they'll use the word that or it, usually. And then it's like, say what you mean. Don't Okay, okay, a- okay. But now that you gave swole shit, I'm going to uh, respond with a positive note. Yeah, that's a good guess, Swole, like the antagonism between individual freedom and social rules. I think that's Uh-oh. that's a good, at least a good guess at what the generalized antagonism would be. I, I can't confirm it, but it's certainly a good guess. Uh, the antagonism between individual freedom and social rules. I mean, I mean, oh, okay. and that's, I mean, and maybe that's what he means by Freud's thing, which would be Lacan's, like, the whole thing is symbolic castration. You have to give up jouissance, jouissance that you never had, but you still have to give up the jouissance you never really had um, in order to be a member of society. So there's a conflict between individual jouissance, idiosyncratic jouissance, and social protocol. Maybe that's the generalized antagonism. Oh, it's a good guess. Okay, and we're we're uh, Laclau and Moff Moffa, whatever. It's probably French, huh? Moff. Or Moof. I think I Todd says Moof, but okay, we'll go with Moofa. Moof. Yeah, so Moofa makes it sound like a mob boss, but uh, <laughs> so yeah, well, so so Laclau and Moof, do they uh, are they Lacanian? That I I don't think so. I don't think they are at all. I mean, that would be one of the point or master signifier. You cut out for a sec. They might what? Hey, okay, I figured that. They might have a certain influence from Lacan because the way Zizek uses master signifier and quilting point in relation to social dynamics, they did a similar thing in that book with like having a privileged signifier like that that functions in those ways. And so... Maybe th- maybe that that was the influence from Lacan. I'm not sure. Okay. But so the point is just that they their book really influenced Slavoj, and it's part of the reason antagonism is such a central concept in his theory of ideology. But but the point when it comes to contradiction is that contradiction opposed to antagonism is internal. Contradiction is a self diremption. Um. A self-direction. Yeah. So it's important to note that neither antagonism nor contradiction are opposition. So I know this is funny, like oh. we started off the lecture doing all these basic distinctions, but Not opposition like is neither antagonism nor contradiction. Contradiction is an internal split. And I want to qual- Contradiction is an internal dialectical split. Antagonism is an external dialectical split. Opposition is where it substantializes both things. They are what they are, independent from one another. 
And then they happen to come into a conflict with each other. It's as if you have two things that are not interdependent on one another. They are Aristotelian substances. They are what they are in and of themselves. And then they come into a conflict. And so it, it, the idea would be like, okay, if we talk, if both the wage labor, if we're talking about contradiction, both the wage labor and the capitalist are internally split. You would, it, like, we have to think it out, but like the idea is that they both, both those positions involve an internal contradiction, right? Antagonism would be saying, okay, these two positions are dependent on each other. So there's a dialectical relation yet. Nevertheless, they are truly pitted against one another, one another. There, there is an external relationship there, even while they are dialectically dependent on one another. Opposition says no dialectical relationship. They are two pure substances. They are what they are in and of themselves. And then an opposition between the two gets established. So the, somebody who thinks in terms of opposition would say, we could have wage, wage laborers would be wage laborers, even if there were no capitalists. And capitalists would be capitalists even if there were no wage laborers. Now, you and I laugh at hearing something like that. But that would be how to think in terms of opposition. Opposition. Who doesn't think uh, interdependent terms in the... In hold the, on, hold on. You, you cut out. Hold on. You cut out. Start again. Son of a bitch. All right. Well, um, so... There's a person got, who doesn't think dialectically is what I caught. Yeah, so there's a person who doesn't think dialectically, uh, which means that they've never really thought about how two things that are enemies or uh, the, the opposite terms in a debate might be mutually interdependent, interreliant, uh, reflecting and mirroring one another in various ways, um, and, and, and more importantly, that that might be a part of a... And they fight it out, and they, th and they think of any kind of apparent binary as mutually exclusive, you would say that that person is thinking in terms of opposition if we're doing it, what, Zizek's way, you said? No, like, somebody who thinks in terms of opposition is basically somebody who presupposes substance ontology. Aristotelian substances. Like, things are what they are in and of themselves outside of their relations to other things. Whereas... To, whether we're talking about antagonism or we're talking about contradiction, that's where we make the move to dialectics, where we see how two things that are at odds with each other, whether it's an internal division or an external division, nevertheless, they are at odds with each other, but in a way that still presupposes or mutually conditions each other. I thought I said that. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> I th but you said opposite... Okay, well, maybe you did, and I misheard you, which that would be some sort of a parapraxis, too. So, so. The person, so the person who doesn't think dialectically just thinks in terms of opposition is what I was trying to say. So then... Yes. So, but then, on the other side, though, what happens a lot of the time is when a person learns to think dialectically, they start to see everything in terms of dialectics, and it's like, well, sometimes there's just a real, like, mutually exclusive opposition and here's where you get the sort of either or Kierkegaardian kind of response where it's like no you're going to have to actually choose you get married or you don't and you're going to be miserable either way and it's right, right right yeah okay right and so it's also important not to see a dialectical relation where there is a you said before it sounds funny 
trees but existed before what? Trees existed before iPhones. They don't have a dialectical relationship. Okay, okay. Right. It, it, I mean, so the point is, don't, like, there's a certain truth. Like, this is part of what makes Hegelian dialectics so important to me. It it gives substance ontology its due. Like, it would recognize, like, yeah, not everything it mutually conditions every, like, you know. Yes, there, trees can exist without iPhones. They're not dialectically related like that. So, but the point is, if you do substance ontology to the letter, like a good Aristotelian, then yeah, you're going to not see dialectical relationships. And then you're not going to see a whole lot of what ontologically conditions certain beings, certain states of affairs. Cool. So, so let's see. Um, yeah. What is, so really quick last time we, t we, we spent most of the conversation building up to, and then talking about law in its threefold way where there's official rules, implicit rules, and then inherent transgression. Um, mm -hmm. and then we've for this one been focusing so far on how antagonism and contradiction have two different meanings and neither of those is opposition. And I'm glad that you've kind of belabored the point on that one because I, I think I get it now and you'd referenced it in the past where I do, I don't think I got it. And so, yeah. And I've never, I don't think I've gone into this in a blog post or anything. I actually, I have a little bit more I want to say about this stuff before moving on. Just again, some part of me, when I'm doing a lecture like this, I want to, I don't want to just reiterate stuff I've said on the blog. Even though I, I know at some point we'll probably talk about the the phallus post or whatever, but um, yeah. So I just ah oh, son of a bitch, you cut out again. Antagonism a little bit more, and okay. so there's there's Laclauan Moofs or Laclauan Moffa's influence on Zizek here, but there's also Hegel's, and so Hegel embraced the idea of war, which again you know we don't really like <laughs> that rubs us the wrong way, but as a dialectical thinker, his idea was okay. Hegel embraced war because he thought that external antagonism was the condition for internal peace within the state. And Slavoj kind of seems to have been inspired in, in this way. glad about war. anything this it's this idea of formal or structural antagonism that is this is why hegel embraced war and so the idea is and it's kind of a simple one but if there is no possibility of foreign war then the antagonism migrates within the social order itself and here when i when i hear this i don't like it but at the same time i see a certain truth to it so a greater consensus among average Americans about things. Americans, you know, of course, then, I mean, there's obviously the glaring exception of how black people were treated and Native Americans. Okay. But on a general level, there wasn't as much internal conflict as we see now. And so, um, the idea is that, okay, when, when we had Russia as this external threat, the Soviet Union, 
Americans, like there was maybe greater peace, uh, greater consensus for a while. Russia, their Soviet Union collapses into the 80s. And now we find ourselves in this very heated culture war. And Hegel could use this situation of saying, see how the antagonism migrated inward in the case of America. And so this is, this is maybe the point he would make here. And hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Are we back yet? Are we back yet? All right, everybody, welcome to this stream. If you're just getting here, uh, we do recommend that you start over from the beginning um, because that's where it begins. You can always one and a half or double speed your way to catch up. Um, while you are doing that, I am bringing Michael back on here for the call. Just give it one second, folks. We're going to try something else. Trying something new now. Bear with me, for the love of God. Michael. Oh, my fucking God. Come on. All right, all right. Agonizing. Agonizing. <sighs> okay, we're back. No cap. All right, quick note for the order. Um, I know Ann said she was going to bring her hotspot over here um, if it was if it kept being bad. So I waited a long time, and then I decided, you know what? I have a hot spot. I don't know if there's much left on it. So next time it cuts out, I'll just switch. And then everyone's going to be like, oh, no, you cut out. You dumped you for a second. I know. I know. And guess what? Some dumbass in the future is going to be like, oh, my God, this isn't edited so that I can just watch it like it's some polished CNN clip. Yeah, suck our dicks. Fucking, we do everything ourselves. That's what you get. Anyway. <laughs> well, there you have it. There, that's it. <laughs> so anyway. Let's uh, see, hold on. So I'm just checking. Yeah, where are we at? No, I'm like, so I'm looking at Marvin's comments and these are good, like, yeah, but doesn't the external threat also prevent us from resolving internal antagonisms? That's a good point because if you're paying all, if if all of your attention is focused on the external antagonism, internal ones, it, you could even say that maybe the external 
antagonism ideologically obfuscates internal ones, right? You don't pay them any mind because they don't seem as important. That's a good point. So, yeah, I mean, there's definitely ways to critique this line of thought. Back. Well, and I would say that... Okay. Sorry. All right. On. Quick. You could hear yourself and myself, couldn't you? Yeah, well, I'm trying I to did. get the... Because I'm doing the hotspot off my phone, now I have to go view the chat from the computer, so I had to go to the video and pull it up. But you can pop the chat out from that, so it takes up less... Uh, bandwidth anyway so what i was going to say though is um look if you're doing this if you're if you're spending your saturday your saturday uh hanging out with some theory bros then guess what you're one of the coolest people in the world and nobody else gets it and that's because you want to learn how to do ideology critique so do i and so if we want to do ideology critique we have to look at an ideology at what it says it believes, at what it says that it does. And then you have to also look at what it actually does. And so this, uh, this, this distinction between opposition, antagonism, and contradiction is useful for doing that because if Zizek is right, then every, every ideology that can be critiqued can be thought through these three categories and so you should be able to find that everywhere. So you go, okay, there's real antagonisms. Let's presume that there are real antagonisms. We will call that the class of A, all right? But this ideology is saying that the real antagonisms are B, C, and D. Okay, are these external or internal? And then if these are external or internal, how are these obfuscating actual internal and external contradictions. Now, one good example is if we're constantly blaming people in our own society, oh, it's single mothers. Oh, it's people on welfare. Oh, it's the immigrants. Oh, it's the rednecks. Uh, it's a Trump supporter, whatever it is. If you have a scapegoat in your society that is always being blamed through your media, and then all of a sudden you start always blaming, you know, Russians, um, you've moved from an internal to external, but you're still obfuscating. That's the point. Well, I mean, and, and to, to return to Marvin's point, I mean, the example of the Soviet Union is really great here to make his point, which is so much of the Red Scare propaganda kept us from thinking about the inequalities in America, right? Like, there, there's a really good point. Marvin makes here where yeah an external antagonism also can have an ideological function to keep us from addressing our own internal conflicts so that's very valid so um, okay Slavoj therefore would argue that antagonism is universal because it will always manifest itself in some particular conflict that's why for him to be a universalist necessarily involves taking the side of the antagonism that actually recognizes the antagonism. For example, the capitalist bourgeois class never recognizes class struggle, but emphatically affirms the organic unity of liberal capitalist society. There is no class warfare for the capitalist. 
Marx and the proletariat, on the other hand, recognize it. Now, remember Margaret Thatcher famously said, there is no society, there are only individuals? Well, the ideology of this statement lies in how it erases or dissimulates, obfuscates, the structural antagonism within capitalist society itself, within our symbolic order. And it's funny how she basically wants to exclude, she doesn't know this is what she's saying, but she's saying... There's no big other at all. Not in the way Lacan, and you know this, Lacan famously says there is no big other. But of course, there, in a sense, there is a big other for Lacan. His whole point, especially early on in his seminars, was showing how there's always the big other as the mediating third between dynamics, between two egos. And so when Margaret Thatcher says there is no society, there are just individuals, she basically said there is no symbolic order, there is no big other, there are only individual egos. Well, to a Lacanian, this is laughable. Um, to say there is no society is to say there is no language, there are no overarching protocols or rules to the symbolic order, and that we have direct ego-to-ego -ego relationships to other people without the mediation of the symbolic order. It's ridiculous. But the point is, a, to a, a certain a, a good a good test, a really good test for if people truly believe that there that there's no such no such thing as a society and all they have is direct relations to other egos, is just pull out a phone and start voice recording the conversation. Oh yeah, exactly. Well, who's listening? Yeah, the and moment, another ego is not listening. Yeah, no, it's just the big other. There's the, the big other. The moment you start recording or saying something where it's being recorded, the mo the moment it's potentially there in the future, you you're in front of the big other. The big other is there with you. It's like when Jesus said, "When there's three or more gathered together in my name." <laughs> is it two or more or three or more? I thought it was three or more. The point it doesn't matter though. The, I mean, the point is they're they're together based on the mediating presence of him as the big other. Right. right. The reason they're gathered is because of the, the virtual third that isn't present there in the way that the other people are present. Yeah. Right. So and I also love that you uh, like my example of the recording thing enough to uh, bring it in because I, I like that example. It, it's a great way of showing. Like, yeah. If you're having a conversation with somebody and they whip out their phone and start recording it, you're sitting there going, well, wait, what the hell? And even though no third person is actually listening in at the moment, yeah, the it's like the big other is there. You've brought in this mediating third. And so, and, and like, it, it's almost there in a weird kind of, it's weird, almost like a spiritual entity. Like, it's not there, obviously, like another person. But and it's always there in the sense that your two egos are speaking language, okay? But if you whip out the phone and start recording it, you make the big others' withdrawn presence become very, very present. Yeah, it, oh. it's almost there with the two of you in a way that it's that it normally isn't. And obviously, it was already there, ready to hand. You just cut it. But you just kind of made it president hand, which also kind yeah, of causes... Yeah, the Heideggerian terms are helpful here. Yeah. 
And you said it was already an example. Like, so is that in one of your blog posts? No, I. That is in the updated version of the Big Other post. Okay. Oh, that's right. And I and I well, and I did do. That. I don't think you have that version because I and it's again what I've added are just fragments that I gotta place within the place within the the post, but. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if I internalized your example and didn't give credit and thought it was my own. But the fact is, it's just a good example. So we could have both come across it because it's obvious. But yeah. Right. All right. So, um, but yeah, that's when when she says that there there's no society. There, she's saying there's no symbolic order. And when you hear it in those in the Lacanian terms, it, you just start laughing at it like it, it's delusional. But. So, um, again, the ideology of the statement lies in how it obfuscates the structural antagonism, right? If there's no society, then there can't be a structural antagonism, i.e. class warfare, baked into it. So, if we get rid of society, we get rid of the structural antagonisms that structure that society. So, so again, so for Slavoj, to be a universalist means taking the a side in the struggle. The universalist position can actually invite those in the other position to come over and join their side, which is to say the universalist position of Marxist class struggle would say, hey, capitalists, like, just join us. Like, don't – this is not a whole thing like, oh, we, 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 we want to harm capitalists or anything – the ideal would be for capitalists to actually join the revolution and say, we're done with this private ownership of the means of production. We want to be part of the revolution too, right? And so the idea is that this, this kind of leftist universal project is, is what's different from a particular project, which is to say, like, the KKK can't invite Jews and blacks to join their movement. No. Whereas... Those of us in in the universalist position, because the reason why is because uh -oh. position, you cut out for a second. Yep. There. Yeah. So you said the reason why. The reason why the KKK can't invite black people and Jews into the KKK is precisely because that position is based on particularity, whereas the position of the uh, of, of the proletariat it's about a universal emancipation so it can welcome even the capitalists in of course the capitalists would have to stop being a capital but the actual person even if that social position or structural position of capitalists we want to see negated we want to invite the person who occupies it into the movement to join in the universal revolution and so uh, the leftist emancipatory project can welcome all whereas the racist or particularist um, struggle or movement cannot. So you see the difference between different forms of a leftist form of politics and a rightist or a conservative or whatever you want to call it that based on some sort of fundamental exclusion. And this is why it drives me absolutely ape shit when people don't just kind of talk 
in the you know in the register of like I would say the symbolic trying to talk about structures and systems and institutions and policies and concrete actual actions but instead get in this fucking imaginary ego feud with fucking I don't know even if it's like some douchebag like Elon Musk or whatever like the and, and no offense Elon you know I know you watch our stuff but you know it's that it, the, the fixation that people make on these individuals, on these personas, on these images, um, either love or hate, you know, this is me, I'm part of that, or I'm against it, this is everything that's against me, um, d goes a little bit further and also just starts to see people who are not recalcitrantly, recalcitrantly, loudly in their own camp as suspicious and probably a part of that other. And they, when, but the thing is, is they will be seeing human individuals, you know, flesh and bone people in their lives, singularities, um, as, as sort of like just extensions of this, this, this bad other, right? And, and mm -hmm. the bad other is one that they think basically could be stopped with a guillotine. They think, well, if we could just kill this set of people, right? We've we've got their addresses, right? Like we know where they live. They're real people. We could just chop their heads off, and then the flowers will grow back. The you know a soft little sprinkle of rain will go by while there's the sun comes out from behind the the, the clouds, and will the hills will come alive. This well, is and that, that's this the is, whole point. That's, in Marx's his sense, whole point was scapegoating. And that's Marx's whole point with fetishism that I was going to say is this, this is fetishized, fetishizing individuals um, and, and that obfuscates systems. So, yeah, 100 percent. Well, and, and that's the thing, right? Let's be very clear on fetishization. Fetishization is when you take a certain person or a certain object, whatever. That thing depends on a whole array of structural relationships, a complicated web of dynamics, right? It's when you bracket out the all of the complicated, multifaceted dynamics that make the thing what it is, and it's as if that whole expansive web is actually just in the thing itself. It essentializes it and reduces it. I mean, and that's why it's commodity fetishism. So you think about what it takes to actually produce a box of Rice Krispies, probably tens of millions of people in some way, shape, or form have played into the production of a box of Rice Krispies, okay? Yet when you go in the store, it's as if the Rice Krispies just magically grew there on the shelf and are what they are in and of themselves. That whole network of productive relationships that made the Rice Krispies is absent, but also present. It's what gives, it sounds funny because I don't know if anybody's been fetishistically and charmed by a box of Rice Krispies, but let's go with it. <laughs> uh, may, maybe uh, um, marshmallow fruity pebbles. That, that would be a, those are better, better example than Rice Krispies. I, I get the fetishistic charm of marshmallow fruity pebbles. I had so, it for fruit. I had it for Fruit Loops. I just have to say. Okay. Yeah. Well, there's marshmallow Fruit Loops, and then Fruity Pebbles decided to compete with them. And so either one, marshmallow fruit loops, marshmallow fruity pebbles. Yeah, I get why there would be a fetishistic aura about them. But um point is so much work, so many relationships, uh, dynamics, etc. went into the production of a box of cereal that 
that's why even a box of cereal, as funny as it sounds to us, can have a certain fetishistic presence. Because all of those structural, systemic, complicated dynamics that went into the production, they're there embodied in it, but you take that to be the essence of just the thing itself. And that's why it has a weird aura. And it's, it's easy to see that. I mean, if it takes that much just to produce a box of Rice Krispies, think about the labor it takes to produce a MacBook Pro or a television, right? I, like, I've, got, I've, got one, I've got one that actually might relate to a lot of people. Um, I'll do a poll in the chat for, to see um, who's actually seen it. But there's a video about the pencil. Does anybody in chat know what I'm talking about? Like, have you seen it? I'm going to say in the chat. Have you seen it, Michael? Say that again. The it's the video. The it's, it's the. It's just like the video about the pencil. It's a. It's viral. And what it takes to make one. Yeah, it's viral. It's on YouTube, and it's a really cool glimpse into all the different countries that are a part of making a pencil. And I've heard libertarians wax romantic about it because it's like it brings us all together. And what they're all kind of just ignoring or not seeing, because this is a form of fetishization as well, is obviously the production process, as which obviously involves a lot of exploited labor. And mm -hmm. that that exploited labor is also being super exploited by the first world that has been using its, um, so its foreign policy right and its trade deals to make it so that it's able to exploit that labor even more than it could in its own countries right and this is when capital gets on that global stage and so the i mean that'd be a really cool video to throw together is just take the video as it currently exists and then interweave what you just said about fetishization and what i just said and add some music because like right there boom that's fetishization is well, like people are like wow look at all the things it did to bring this together and bring all these people together to do this Look, even if somebody doesn't go for Marx's overarching project or the tradition of Marxism in general, it's hard to not uh, – if you understand what he's getting at with co commodity fetishism, I don't see how you just can dismiss that. It's such a profound insight. And I mean – and I like talking about it in different ways. I think commodity fetishism – it, it, it can be a difficult concept to understand. It's, it, I think because it gets talked about more than, say, objet or body without organs or whatever, it's as if it's an easy concept to get, and I don't think it is. And so there, I think the, the more ways we have to talk about commodity fetishism, the better. And one way I found is, okay, you just think about, you, you look at, I'm looking at my MacBook Pro right now. I'm thinking about what would it take for me on my own by myself to make a MacBook Pro? <laughs> you have this weird it is a kind of intuition of like it's beyond like my wildest dreams or calculation of like how would I possibly ever make this thing right and what you get in this moment is like holy shit think about the amount of knowledge and learning and experimentation right. and labor that went in to making this thing possible and yet we act like all of that is just in the thing itself. Like the thing just has it. And so. So. 
Yes, but I just want to like point out that just to make sure that everyone gets it that the that that video that uh, libertarians will will wax romantic about when praising capitalism for making the pencil is expanding the scope and still taking into account a ton of this other stuff, but it stays purely in the imaginary and still obfuscates what's what's happening at the structural, symbolic, and also real levels, which is the wars, the actual wars and CIA psyops. We're talking assassinations of third world, uh, you know, uh, democratically elected people. We're talking about genocides. We're talking about all these things. You know, I, I would love to read some books about the United Fruit Company and the people that it tortured and killed just to get this monopoly so they could sell us cheap bananas. But the 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 we're the, talking about this whole traumatic traumatic dimension of the production of these commodities we all yeah. use. Yeah, exactly. Have you seen Blood right. Diamond? Uh, Leo DiCaprio, right? Yeah. I Actually, I haven't. Okay. I know you about haven't? it. Oh, no. No. All right. That's everybody's assignment. Go watch that and then think about – go watch other videos where people talk about diamonds and almost all they focus on is the economics but they're never doing it in a sort of critique of political economy way, which is to say you don't look at the production and distribution and consumption of this thing in a purely economic lens. You have to look at it as also in its political context the, and, and the, the horror and trauma of war and of what's actually being – Yeah, because if you just look at states and what they say about what they do at the ideological level, you're missing what's happening at this deeper – level and it's still ideology functioning um but uh yeah i would say blood diamond is a really good example of the the horror behind these commodities that people economize so i'm just gonna i didn't know we would go here today but this is what i like about these discussions is where their real dimension you never like these these points that aren't scripted into it or planned or anything just want to say that if anybody wants a Lacanian reading of this sort of thing is um, Todd McGowan's book, Capitalism and Desire. In chapter four, this chapter is titled The Persistence of Sacrifice After Its Obsolescence. What McGowan does in this chapter is say like, okay, there's a sense in which ritual sacrifice has ceased to exist in capitalist society. Which is to say, sacrifice doesn't have these ritualistic ceremonies or spectacles the way it did in older forms of society. But he also wants to maintain, but don't let that fool you, there's immense sacrifice that organizes capitalist society, right? Well, one of his examples is... Um, hold on, where is it? And we're talking about McGowan's book. But while you pull it up, I'm just going to say that Anne asked in the chat, what's this poll asking? I paused for a bit and I'm speeding up to catch up to live. And I want to say, everybody, that that's exactly how you do it. You got to pause when you got to pause and then you push play again and you can speed it up to catch up if you like. And the fact is, is you don't have to watch it live. You can always add it to your watch later because we do this just as much for people in the future as we do it for people who are right now because there's really no 
no separation between people in the future and people right now because we ourselves are also in the future because we are in this moment but this moment is a part of time in the same way that this place is a part of space and you're here in it with us right now so welcome it's so good to have you all here and um, I wanted to read one comment really quick um, actually two Stephen Clausen is still here so that's good to hear lucky charms all marshmallows equals jouissance says Stephen Clausen and then Marvin said something that I thought was a really good question. I know that I actually have a rule at the at the end of our channel trailer that says ask good questions. And I say that because I know some teachers say all questions are good questions. And I think that that, that people saying all questions are good questions can make some people think, Oh, then any question that pops into my head, I should instantly ask. When in reality, you should write it down. Because all questions are good questions to write down and then look back over later and then maybe ask. <laughs> At least hey, give yourself Dave, a couple minutes. Dave, I have a question. Question. What's your question? What's your favorite flavor of popsicle? Okay, okay. Let's talk about this. My favorite <laughs> popsicle is actually... Oh, get the fuck out of here. Get the fuck out of here. A cough drop. I love cough drops right now. I've got hey, these. Where, where, where's the wild cherries? I told you to get wild cherry. I hate cherry everything because I used to. All right, all right, all right. I, I did too you're, much. You're, you're objectively wrong, but okay. I did too much dirtbag shit when I was younger. I fucking used to drink cough syrup, and the, the cherry cough syrup totally ruined my appreciation for cherry candy. But Marvin said, and this is yeah, a, good that's a question. great question. This is a good question. He said, could you say that our tendency to make evil enemies in the face of a universal project could be said to be the lack of faith in our own projects? So I don't even have a good response to a question that good. Like, I, I mean, I'd have to really think it through to do it any kind of justice. I mean, it's a great thought and definitely worth thinking about. It, you know, especially, especially, I mean, this is a question for any of us on the left. Why do leftist, universalist, emancipatory projects also so often find themselves involving the persecution of some scapegoat figure? That's, that's a heavy question. And hey, here's a follow-up question because I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to try to just respond to the question because it is good enough that I'm just going to think about it for the next, you know, ten years. I, I'm right there too. Like I don't, I don't even want like it. It's that good of a question. It requires some reflection on it. But my follow-up question is: What would a politics look like that doesn't get stuck in the imaginary? Who would it attract, and how would it organize them? That's my question because. I mean, obviously, that's the that's the problem for a new civilization. Because well, I mean, I, to go back to my example, isn't that what's disheartening about the film? And have you ever seen Independence Day? Yeah, I the alien the alien invasion movie. I need to rewatch it soon. No, I mean, I, it always stuck with me, and I thought about this. This is maybe one of the moments in my childhood that I had a, a philosophical insight and. Didn't know I did. I just remember thinking, and I, I it was one of these movies I saw at the theater, and okay, it's not an all-time classic great movie, but at that point, the special effects really blew us away. We were really impressed with the special effects in that. And so I saw it a couple times, and then it was always a movie that just was like part of my childhood. So if it was I, on, I, I'd, put, I'd leave it on in the background. I but I, I want to say... I've probably seen it twice. I loved it. 
and it's totally worth watching. That's my endorsement. But here's the thing. The message is is very pessimistic, which is to say the only way we can have universal global peace among all nations and among all religions and among all human beings is a bloody terrible war with aliens. Oh so, yeah. That's right. We right? need like, that's the that's the message. Right. So it, it it's in there. We can't do that without evil aliens. But this <laughs> is actually why there's that conspiracy theory about Project Blue Beam where people think that either Jesus or aliens is going to be holograph simulated and the news will take it seriously and it will be used to externalize our In other words, and... the second coming of Christ did not take place. Exactly. Yeah, it'll be it'll be right. pure pure simulation. I, I could so write a Baudrillardian piece on that. Yeah. So, okay, but what's your point about Independence Day bringing it back around here? Right, no, I already made it. It's just the point that it, it it's actually Despite like the triumphant ending, oh, humans won. It's the pessimistic message of the only way we can establish global harmony is through a violent alien intruder. All right, now I want to I want to say something else. Someone in the chat messaged me directly and asked. Um, actually, it was Brian asked um, if the two of us, you and me, if we've ever done a whole stream on or a segment of a stream on talking about how to read and take notes and our approach to research and how we think about it. I don't, we haven't, I mean, we, you and I have discussed it ad infinitum, it seems, but yeah. I don't think we've ever talked about it on stream. Well, you know me, I just want to talk about theory, but obviously that has played a huge role. The way I study the changes in how I study over the years yeah, big, big. I mean, I could talk a lot about that. I just, for me, talking about how I study is boring. So, whatever. But so, so we're both non-orthodox in our approach to these things. And for me, I've gone through stages and phases, and I'm a development. It's dialectical and all that. But it is inherently worth talking about. Um, I find it absolutely fascinating. I always ask professors these questions. I love to hear what they have to say. And I also love to ask what gets called autodidacts, which is really just anybody who is self-directed as a learner. So if you're, you know, if you are learning all the time, then you've got to be developing learning styles. And I've been reading this book about learning styles called Mathematical Mindsets by Joe Bowler. It's really good. Anyway, all I want to say about that is we're not going to do it right now. We've still got like another... We've got some good time ahead of us still for this conversation. How, what's our doing. time limit tonight? How much longer we got? Let's talk about it in a second. I just want to. Well, I well I got to go by about uh, seven thirty my time. So eight thirty mine. Yeah. So, but before we get back to Zizek and ideology, and uh, you know, basically the second leg of this, you could call this a sort of intermission. What we've been on here, um, and so for those people who've been with us this whole time, I think that's really exciting. It's great to have you here. If you've been here this whole time and if you're and if you're catching up and then you finally get to this point in the conversation, go ahead and say you got to this point in the conversation. Everyone can just say this in, in all caps. 
I got to this point in the conversation. If you get to this point in the conversation, drop it in the live chat, drop it in the actual comments of the real video in the future as well to let us know that you actually got to that point because there's a, like our average is people only listen for 12 minutes before they drop out and that's very cool because I know a lot of those people add us to their watch later and then finish it like six months later and so hey you in six months um, it's good to see you here um, but, but when you get to this point say hey I got to this point it'll be funny but anyway uh, I wanted to do a quick advertisement uh, from our sponsors so um, it's not Squarespace it's not audible it's actually just hashtag free Mikey because he has a job right now and that's bullshit. So we want to make that not happen. So you have to go to www.patreon.com forward slash the dangerous maybe because if you want the best theory teacher in the world to not have to go to a wage labor job, then all we need is $3,000 a month at the bare minimum. And then for his creature comforts, 10 grand would be really nice. So get it coming. Bring that money in. This is what I need to not be on camera. <laughs> I know you're all embarrassed, but here the thing is: is I one last thing before we get to chat, and we're, we'll touch on chat before we jump into the second the second leg of this. But um, the other part of this ad is not hashtag free Mikey, but it's related because part of that is Michael Downs, right here with us right now. Everybody is going to make us a video essay. I will make tutorials for him. I will be his phone, you know, Geek Squad specialist person when he needs help, but I will walk him through the process and he'll be able to make videos like Cuck Philosophy, Cheka, Jonas Cheka, and um, that's going to be really cool and everyone's really excited well, about we it. Need to, Claude McGowan makes video and we don't tend to lump him in because it's, it's like Jonas and Epoch and One Dime, but like I'm trying to get in the habit of including Todd because I mean Todd's Todd's videos on YouTube about Lacanian theory and Hegel and whatever else he's on they're just some of the best ever. I mean I go back to them all the time. You're they're right. so good. Not only is Todd's stuff really good um, and totally worth watching, but also I mean. If you, I, we, we, in my hybrid literacy marathon stream, the 17 hour stream, I ended up saying a few times that the distinction between theory tube and bread tube is theory tube watches Todd McGowan and is usually like less, less of a ego performance and a little bit more focused on, you know, understanding things. And so, um, but McGowan is basically, you know, daddy of theory tube. Um, he's, he's got like the most popular theory podcast, why theory he's got. Um, a bunch of really good books. I just read uh, Emancipation After Hegel. I've read his Identity Politics. I've read parts of Capitalism and Desire. I plan on reading it thoroughly within the next you know, t two months here and discussing it with some people in my life within the year. Um, there's a couple other books that people can get, can get in on uh, if you want to read Michael Heinrichs. I, I, that is one of the most universally acclaimed books. Every single person I know I don't care if they're Delusian, Lacanian, Marx, everybody loves that book. Yes. This, this, this right here is Michael Heinrich's Karl Marx's Capital. It's the introduction to the three volumes of Karl Marx's Capital. And I, I it, look, we're going to, because uh, I got a bunch of people I like that I get to read Das Kapital with in the, in, like in, in August. And 
Uh, I'm not going to talk any more about that right now. All I'm saying is this is kind of laying the groundwork for that. And so you, if you, it's time to buy it, time to start reading it, time to start thinking about it. There'll be streams about it. There'll be conversations about it. And I really look forward to sharing this stuff in the future. But Todd McGowan makes really good content. I, we're going to eventually read his Capitalism and Desire within the year, like I said. Michael Downs has written some really good blog posts, really unpacking and adding to in some ways, of the, in dialogue with, I guess, McGowan's work. And I'm just excited to be, what, one point of contact away from McGowan because you have conversations with him all the time. But also Telos Bound and Theory and Philosophy and E-Codex and um, Alim Alra, uh, Halim Elra. I, I don't know if I'm saying his name right. I'll post the link later. Anyway, Theory Tube's great. But what I want to say is the thing about... I just want to give a shout out. Theory and Philosophy, I want to give a shout out the some of the the best stuff on Baudrillard on Facebook uh, or Facebook. I don't know. Okay. Do do? That's a weird slip. Okay, best stuff on YouTube. Um, if you if you want really good stuff, and I mean, he's covered all kinds of different continental thinkers right now. But um, top rate reading of Baudrillard for sure. We got a bunch of this is in chat, so people are doing a good job. Yeah, if you forgot to to drop a this in the in the chat, go ahead and do it. Make sure to do it on the actual video later when you come back to this in the future. Um, and so before before we move on into the talking about the chat and then getting into the last half of this stream, I wanted to also just finish my advertisement for not just hashtag free Mikey, but getting Michael a video editing machine. To replace his breaking computer, um, I can't even go to like tell him. I can't even go to Wikipedia on this thing. And one of my best friends is a coder, and I had him look at it, and he messed with it for two hours. Yeah. At the end of which, he was like, "Dude, you're fucked. I don't know why the hell you can't go to Wikipedia." Or it's, and when I say Wikipedia, I mean half the inter half the sites on the internet. There's like some security block. This I've had this computer for I don't know. Uh, 14 years and yeah it just it it's it's in it's on its last leg it's sad sad i know you love that laptop but listen we'll get you oh if i could buy this exact same laptop again right now i would it's i've never i mean it's great but as my friend said he's like dude you lucked out this was like macbook pros at their peak he's like it, it, he's like but i'm still surprised it even works but yeah, it's it's weird. It just it does all kinds of shit now that I I, don't, I, I have no idea what to do. So, you know me, I'm not a cool guy. But but I think so. My friend Chris builds computers for people. Has been for like ten years. He taught me everything I know about computers, or at least how to get started to where I could then ask my own questions and use DIY help tutorial videos on YouTube or whatever to get to where I am. Chris is amazing. We love Chris. Chris is. What up, Chris? One of my favorite people in the entire world and has been since I met him. Um, we've been roommates twice and we're still like a couple of the best friends even though he's moved on in life and has like a kid now and a wife and everything like that. Um, love Chris. And Chris salvages um, thrown away or recycle. He basically recycles old tech. Um, he works at an urban mining depot where, where giant institutions will actually recycle, like out all like at the school, will get rid of all of its computers to like set up a new computer lab, and all those old 
computers go to Chris. He works at this depot where he then refurnishes them. He like fixes them, gets them back on the market on Amazon and is able to support his family doing that. But he, he, he barely scrapes by because he helps so many people for free all the time, which is why I put forward the first $150 going towards Mikey's computer out of my own pocket just to pay Chris for his labor um, because he's done so much free stuff for me. I wasn't going to ask him to do that. And uh, I know he would though because he's that kind of guy. And so here's the thing. We're going to, Chris is building an epic computer at a budget price um, so that Michael will be able to do this. But, but what parts we buy, because he kind of set out like the ideal budget build and then he set out the ideal probably twice as much build. And, you know, he's, he set up this budget for us that we've already, you know, looked at and talked with him about. And he, the, the pieces he buys off of like Newegg and, and uh, eBay and uh, Amazon and stuff like that, for all of these internal parts, the CPU, the GPU, um, the RAM, the, 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 I know for a fact he's already, uh, you know, you could have multiple screens because Chris can set you up with screens. But the thing is, like he just has a ton of screens. I have three screens. I got them all for free from Chris. But um, these machines, the, the, or specifically the machine we're setting you up with, because um, he's obviously built me a few machines, he, he, and he's built a few of my friends some machines. The, but the one that he builds you is going to be better than any of the ones he's built any of us. It's going to be uh, dialed into your very specific needs and nothing more. No, you know, and so it's going to be very essentialized. And so whatever people give us in terms of money for that, that's what it will be used for. And I'm going to show on screen our progress so far, everybody. But the thing that I'd like to ask of you, Michael, while I do that is to really quick... Um, just explain, uh, what, what, what made you say to me that when we were talking about getting you a new computer, what made you say to me that you would, you would, you would make one video essay if, if that happened? Well, part of it is just, and I got to give, I got to give a shout out to my, my friend that I mentioned again, or mentioned earlier, uh, the coder. Who tried to look at my computer his name's christian so hey christian giving you a shout out um christian especially I, now all my hey, friends hey, for hey, years hey. i'm have gonna been cut going, you off i'm sorry to cut you off i'm sorry to cut you off let's both turn off our video okay she's lagging out there we go things will be faster now everybody so let's keep going sorry what were you saying okay hold on so for years Everybody's been telling me, do YouTube videos, do YouTube videos. So I did the two Lacan videos from years ago. Those were the only two I did. And I just didn't like the process of making videos. I didn't know how to do it. And so <clears throat> because I didn't know how to do it, and my friend Christian's the one who actually edited those videos together for me because I didn't know how to, how to do it. But the blog has been so well received that I'm sitting here going, okay, if I took some of these posts and turned them into video essays, well, that would probably be a good idea. And so I've been thinking about doing the video essay thing for a while. And that's kind of just where I'm at, where obviously I'm going to write more blog posts than do video essays. Obviously I wouldn't do video essays for everything I've put, posted on the blog, but there are specific ones 
that I think would be really good as YouTube video essays. And so I'd like to get to the point where I can just do these basic videos. Um, they're not going to be, they're not going to be off the charts when it comes to the aesthetics or special effects. I'm not doing that. But as far as just basic video essays, I, I would like to do that. Um, or at least give it a shot. Right now, primarily I'm a writer. I, I'm always going to be a writer and my preferred medium is just blog posts or books or writing, but there are certain ones like the OJ Petit off post, the Phallus post, the GGX Bartleby politics. Um, just the name of a few of them that I'm like, yeah, those should be video essays. So, yeah. but between, between Christian and then my other friends and then especially you, um, cause if anybody's been my biggest supporter and been, always wanted me to do the video thing, it was, it was you. So, uh, you and Christian people in a hundred so, years will say, yeah, well, Dave was just that person who discovered Mikey. Um, and then that, it'll be kind of like, like, like who's Horkheimer? No, it'll be like, uh, Mikey's <laughs> that dude who knew the guy, uh, Dave, who came up with time energy theory. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see. But I, I, you know, it's Limp Biscuit discovered Stained, and I think that was the best thing he ever did. But um, the the thing that you all see on the screen right now is a meter that says fifty percent. Uh, says like forty percent. It says five hundred dollars. And I did a video update a couple days ago just to close out this thing about the video fundraiser. I did a video update about the fundraiser a few days after announcing the fundraiser in the in our stream last week and so in the last week well in the first couple of days we made well in the first few days we made five hundred dollars and so i that was my first announcement and 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 when 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 we got our first 50 bucks you were like what and then when we got no i'm like blown away i'm like i'm i can't i'm thank you to everybody who like i I don't know what to say yeah except thank you like but words fail right it's amazing and uh, and then and then when we got three hundred dollars, you were like, "What?" And so everybody, guess what then happened? Do you, can you guess? We got even more money. So thank you everybody who's been helping us with this. Like it, it really is gonna be re- it's gonna be cool. I'm 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 stoked. You'll be able to say, "Oh yeah, well I'm a part of TheoryTube and I got Mikey on." Like back on, I got Mikey back on. You'll be able to say that. That's why I do all this. I will say, I've had so many people message me over the years, like, "What happened to you? Why don't you do more videos?" People seem to like the the two. Can I tell you something funny about the two videos I made? Yeah. Uh, So I tried to make them. Okay, so the first one's on the mirror stage, the second one's on Lacan's concept of the Oedipus complex, but. My whole point is was the staging of it, and and I don't think people got it. Like I purposely put up all these posters of musicians I like, and I had all my favorite books, and I just had all the stuff that I have egoic identifications with, and I just I was like, yeah, I don't think people got like I was trying to visually represent what how Lacan says like you are the other at the egoic level you are thing things outside yourself uh, obviously the the key example is your mirror image your imago right. but there's a sense in which you are 
the posters on your wall you identify with. Like, that's what a teenager's room is, right? Like, it's their whole ego kind of, like, spit out onto the walls. And, and, and importantly, that is the – that is what we mean when we're talking about what would be a politics that doesn't organize at that level primarily, right? Right, because there's a sense – look, Zizek and McGowan and most Lacanians at this point, they focus on the axis from the symbolic to the real – that's the key thing. You'll find a lot of the times they leave out discussions of the imaginary. And I'm kind of disappointed in that. Now, they'll tell you the reason they do it is because the imaginary is a dead end. Like, there's nothing to really be done with it. But I I think in – this is where I'm Baudrillardian, I guess, where I just grant the image more power than, than that. And, yeah, I mean, Baudrillard – uh, Guy Debord, Society of the Spectacle. When when we're on social media, uh, Instagram and Facebook, and uh, it's undeniable that the image has a power. So I think that, like, I would hope at some point I will do something to revitalize discussions of the imaginary in a new way. And maybe me as a Baudrillardian can help do that, like, I can read something into the Lacanian imaginary that most Lacanians don't do. And I think that, uh, you know, it's kind of like how you said that rhetoric matters last week. You know, the imaginary matters. It does. Obviously it does. Um, so does the superstructure in, in, in that sort of like Marxist sense or whatever. But the... The problem, obviously, is that it's so easy to get seduced by it and then just like focus in on that. Or people who do primarily live out their lives in the imaginary and the aesthetic sphere, as Kierkegaard would call it, you know, they skew everything so that everything's constantly being framed all of a sudden within these register, within this register. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it's just like, okay, so how do you filter them out from the outset? Um, right. Well, first of all, they have to listen to all of our conversations. Then they have to, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But, um, you know, so that, but it's a problem. What would, what would, what would this politics look like if it wasn't just that? But the thing is, yeah, no, um, artists still matter, right? Artists are still a big part of the process. Um, my main thing is just that, uh, in so many organizations I've gotten involved with and so many that I'm still interested in today, there will be people who are just like, we just, you know, we're painting the way forward. It's the imagination. You know, it's, we just have to envision it. And it's like, I, I, I think we need to seduce people with, with the aesthetic, but I'm not saying that that, but I don't think that that can do the work we need to do within the symbolic. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Well, okay, so where are we? I want to get back to. Uh, I want to talk, just. Is there anything in chat that you want to touch on before diving into the next part? If not, just go. I haven't ch- looked at chat. What's what's going on? I haven't either. But I said we were going to check on chat during this intermission before we kept going. So. Um, check on chat, and then I'll, I'll get back to the lecture. 
actually I'll just say this Anne, you go ahead and uh, read over the chat everything that we haven't touched on um, go ahead and give us a little DJ announcement through WhatsApp to catch us up on what we missed and we'll play that in 10 minutes but now Michael can you just give the sort of broad brush where are we going in the rest of this conversation because obviously we can't do everything so you want to focus on right what, I mean what do you so want here's on? what I want to do so Again, we're not even th – this lecture I prepared has five parts to it. We're still in the first part. <laughs> so um, the overarching trajectory is just to try to flesh out Zizek's theory of ideology as much as we can. Down the road, I would love to do something on going chapter by chapter through Sublime Object. Um, but – we're not going to do that here. It's more of just trying to connect the dots. And so basically after we get through this first sec, the, the, this first section of the lecture is just devoted to the key elements that comprise Zizek's theory of ideology. So today like, I want to kind of start pushing forward and see if we can get through this first part. Um, Cause we have a lot more to talk about. Um, as far as so, but what what is the subject? What is the subject matter of this first part? So we're gonna. I mean, okay. I mean, we're talking. We have to talk about the ideological scapegoat, theft of enjoyment, politics of enjoyment. Then we. I want to talk a little bit about rightist enjoyment versus leftist enjoyment. I would like to touch on the ideology of ego psychology, which that's relevant, Ooh. believe it or not. Then we need to talk about master signifier and the quilting point, which are two ego key signifiers. So, I mean, and probably the rest of this is important just for understanding ego psychology critique. But everybody, if you're listening to this right now, then you probably live in a world where you're surrounded by people who do ego psychology all the time. And you probably do as well. And so this is a critique of everything you know and everyone you know. So stay for that. Then, I mean, we got to talk about master signifier, <laughs> objet petit a, quilting point, objet petit a. Quilting point, um, blah, 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 blah. Um, cynical ideology. We, we haven't talked about how Zizek takes cynicism and sees modern ideology as cynical ideology. Um, we got to talk about the materiality of belief, which is a key thing for him. So, so obviously, we got to talk about superego, symptom, and synthome. We got a lot to get through. And what we're going to have to do is just realize this is going to be an ongoing series because like I, I make these bullet points and I'm like, Oh, we can get through all this stuff quickly. And then I realize no, we can't get through all this stuff quickly. Yeah. I agree. Not if, and, and, and that's what we're trying to do here. I mean, people could get, say, Oh, this is bullshit. They just, you know, they linger on. I want a 15 minute video that explains Zizek's theory of ideology. Well, good luck. Obviously, somebody can make a, a good short video, but we're trying to talk it through where it becomes a living theory for listeners, where it's not just, okay, I learned, okay, somehow master signifier, OJR, quilting point, uh, theft of enjoyment. You can say all these words, but they're not living concepts because you don't see your own circumstances or your society's circumstances through them. And... It takes work. It takes a lot to 
live in these concepts. And that's what we're trying to do here is if anybody wants to get a, a, a deeper familiarity with how GZX theory of ideology works, that's what we're trying to do. And it can't be done in 30 minutes. Talk about this for a second. Um, two things. One, I was going to say, if we get another like $250 in the next, okay. Um, now okay. when we do that stream, who knows, but these are an ongoing series and that's the whole point. Now, sometimes we're talking, you know, and, um, but it's an ongoing thing in the same way that Lacan did these seminars. Now, most people don't know about Lacan's seminars, but the fact is the guy did not write a lot of millions of notes and then he would go and he would talk. And he would go, he, there were these public attended, um, you know, things where it's not just his students, right, who are learning psychoanalysis because he was teaching people how to do it. Um, Philosophers, sociologists. That's right. Hippolyte and Derrida and, you know, all these different people, you know, are in there. Guattari, you know, and, it, you know, the place was packed out. I think Claude Levy Strauss was in there and there was a lot of, you know, it was like a hundred people, right? Well, we're presuming the same sort of ragtag team. We're presuming the same hundred ragtag oddballs from all over the world who are coming to our seminar ones. We've got the Baudrillard one. These are all ongoing. And so like if you're in, if you're in for it, you like it. If you're actually one of the people who's like, who likes it, you're not like these people online who are like, Oh, it's long. It's not edited. Well then awesome. You're here for it because I mean, the fact is, is like what me and Mikey and then also like, Anne, independent of Mikey have, has just been like, why don't we just like have a theory church? I don't even care. Like once a week, you know, once a week it's a lecture and people take it seriously. Um, but that's what we already have going right here. And so that's why I'm getting, that's why I'm excited to see someone like Brian in the chat to know that Anne's, you know, planned her night around it and taken the time. There's a bunch of people who've, see Steve, uh, it's great to see Steven here. Yeah. There's a lot of people who've chosen to do this. And I think that that's, um, that to me is really exciting because obviously like that's why we're doing it is because we expect that it is something people will appreciate because we appreciate it also. And you know, it's something we wouldn't get the same thing from it if we were just having our own personal conversations, but we've had hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of these conversations already. So the thing is, is like, we, you know, we, we do do these, but they are obviously different for us when we do them with you. And so we do need you, right? You're all a part of it. And so we appreciate you all being along. There you go. That's, that's okay. We good to go. Yeah, go back in. Let's, let's go back in for the last stretch. Okay. So I just want, I like, I, I, this, this part in his book was so great. I just, I want to, you, you were talking about earlier, you're talking about the real traumatic element of where the commodity comes from. Then I was talking about, okay, you know, we were talking, uh, I mentioned, oh, well, Todd in capitalism and desire. And then that's when the break in the conversation came. I just want to read this real quick. So this is, uh, this is, part of this chapter four from capitalism and desire. So this is a note I wrote here, but 
if it sucks to be a worker in America, France, Germany, Japan, South Korea, etc., then what it's like? What is it like to be a worker in the Congo? Yes, consumer society has made it seem that capitalism has come to treat its workers better and better, but this view depends on extremely limiting one's vision of what's happening around the world. It's true that things have gotten better, relatively speaking, for some workers in some countries. Which is why McGowan says one would rather be a young woman toiling in a garment manufacturing in the 1840s Manchester than a child mining coltan in the Congo in the 2000s. At at its purest, capital has no problem in working young children to death if this means greater increases in profit. The logic of capital will never think twice about whether or not it's immoral to eat your children alive. Walmart is responsible for horrible working conditions in China, India, and Vietnam. The low prices at Walmart depend on the misery of workers in those countries. Apple also forces workers into terrible conditions in order to produce iPods, iPads, and iPhones. This is a two-step process. One, the mining of raw materials, and two, the assembly of the various devices. Now, I'm quoting Todd. Hmm. This is on page 101, Capitalism and Desire. According to the Enough Project, a group fighting crimes against humanity, Apple has historically one of the worst, uh, Apple was historically one of the worst culprits among electronic manufacturers who relied on minerals mined in the Congo. The four minerals that are most essential for electronic products include columbite, tantalite, or coltan for tantalum, Cassarite for tin, wolframite for tungsten, and gold. Tantalum, tin, tungsten, and gold each play important roles in the functioning of electronic devices like the iPod and iPhone. Because the mines were under the control of various militia groups, they could enforce the most deplorable working conditions imaginable. 48 hour consecutive or 48 consecutive hours in unlit gas-filled tunnels child labor or child slave labor rape of workers death for the failure to achieve mining quotas and so on despite the geographical distance that separates the retail outlets selling iPhones and the mines in the Congo these two sites enjoy an intimate connection the sacrifice of workers in the Congo is the condition of possibility for the consumer's enjoyment of the iPhone, though this consumer must remain able to disavow any knowledge of this sacrifice. How are they able to disavow it? The fetishistic mechanism of the commodity, right? Oh, and now I'm, he doesn't, Todd doesn't say that, but I'm adding that. It's commodity fetishism that allows right. us to turn a blind eye to what's going on. Also, I just want to add... I told Todd this. I wish he had qu- wish he had quoted Kanye West's words. I know everybody can give <laughs> Kanye shit right now, but Kanye, and I'm not saying Kanye has never been one of my favorite rappers, but I always find myself respecting certain lyrics. Like there's lines and and there's verses he's written that are really really good, and so. There is um, his you know, verse examples from. Off the t- oh, you're gonna you're gonna show us an example right now. No, well, I'm I'm not gonna read. I'm not gonna sit here and like <laughs> rhyme the verse or anything. I just want to say, if you want a, a like a rap verse that actually encapsulates this, 
he does an incredible job. He's a real wordsmith on Diamonds from Sierra Leone, the remix version of the song with Jay-Z. Just listen to Kanye's verse on there. Like it's really, really good. So, okay. Well, that's all I wanted to say. Todd talks about this in Capitalism and Desire, and it's definitely worth reading. So, with that being said, let's get back to the lecture. All I want to say here, because we spent a lot of time on universality of the Hegelian sort and antagonism, contradiction, opposition. Okay, we've seen how Slavoj and Todd differentiate themselves on the topic of the universal. For, the uni for Slavoj, it's the antagonism. For, for Todd, it's the lack, the universal lack. But the main question is, okay, if they have this, this difference in universality, do they also have a difference in how they conceive of ideology? Again, sort of. For Slavoj, ideology obfuscates the universal antagonism, whereas for Todd, ideology conceals the universal lack. But Todd would also say that ideology makes the lack contingent and fillable. Ideology convinces us that our lack can be filled once and for all. An ideological lack is, I don't have any money. Since having money uh, wouldn't actually fill my ontological lack. So the point is, I'm always going to be a lacking, desiring subject. There is a constitutive lack that makes me the type of being that I am. Nevertheless, ideology will convince me that I would be whole or full, ontologically speaking, if some particular lack of mine was filled in. Not, I would still be a lacking, desiring subject. But that's what ideology does, is it tells us, like, here's, here's what it would take for you to actually be whole, right? And then it holds out a phantasmatic scenario as, like, this is the promise of, or, or the solution to your lack. Hmm. So, ideology, so Todd would say the, I, excuse me, ideology is the justification of our lack. It's the explanation why we lack. Whereas fantasy for Todd is ideology's solution to our lack. Okay. So that's, that's how they differ. I think they're more similar than different. But hopefully this has helped kind of pinpoint exactly what Slavoj is getting at in his theory of ideology. I think it kind of helps to juxtapose it to Todd's, even though they're very similar. Because, again, the whole point right. is for both Slavoj and Todd, what ideology does is obfuscate the real of society. That traumatic, uh, inconsistent aspect of society all right okay so that brings that part i mean it's not this section of the first section to an end now we're gonna i just and we've kind of talked about it but let's talk about the ideological scapegoat because just in passing because we've already basically talked about it that's the whole point so in a social in a society in a social order for for zizek the point is, there's always gaps. And when he talks about gaps, he's talking about that real dimension. He's talking about the, the places within that social order that are inconsistent, contradictory, antagonistic. And the point is, those deadlocks 
make it where society can't do certain things. Think about it like this. The rules of basketball determine that, oh, you can't have two balls on the court at one time. Well, it's not impossible to think of a change in the rules that would allow two balls to be in play on the court at the same time. It would change the structure of the game. The, the game would be radically different if <laughs> there was two balls in play at the same time. And we could say it would even change it so much as to make it a different game. But it's not, it's not like ontologically or physically impossible for two balls to be in play at the same time. It's, it's symbolically impossible within the rules and configurations of basketball as we know it. Well, that's what happens, say, in capitalist society. There are certain things that we could say are possible. For example, you walk in somewhere, you, you pick up use values, which is to say food, clothing, etc., and you walk out without paying for them, right? That's not, it's not like metaphysically impossible that that could happen. It's the rules, laws, protocols of capitalist society. It's symbolic structure that makes that not happen, not possible. And so all of these points in a society of contradiction and possibility, et cetera, we, Zizek talks about them as the gaps in the symbolic texture, the gaps of the real. And so the point is, obviously, these points of contradiction or inconsistency are weaknesses within the symbolic order. It doesn't want us to focus on them. It doesn't want us to fixate on them. It wants us to ignore them. And it does it does this for Zizek by giving us a scapegoat. It's as if, like, you know how we talk about, like, eclipses, like the eclipse of the moon, right? Mm. It's as if there's, at, at the points in the symbolic order where we, we come to these gaps, these voids. I mean, it's weird, I know. Is it a contradiction or is it a void? All of these are ways Zizek has of talking about these points of the real that must remain out of sight for the social order to continue to reproduce itself. And so it's as if the social order, or what we should say is the ideology of the social order will cover these gaps, these points of inconsistency with an ideological scapegoat. It's how it covers these. And so, for example, why is there so much poverty Oh, it's not because of the structure of capitalist society. It's not because of the logic at play within the accumulation of capital and wage labor. It's because people are lazy, lazy people or immigrants have come in and destabilized working conditions. And so the citizens of the country now feel like, oh, oh, if, if only the, the immigrants hadn't shown up. It's the whole thing from the South Park. They took his job. Right. Uh, no, the problem isn't that they took his job. The problem is the structure of wage labor itself. But it doesn't. the system obviously doesn't want us to zero in on those structural dynamics. And so it provides a scapegoat. And the key is that it libidinalizes it. It turns it into a sublime object, which, again, sublime object almost seems like it would be a complimentary thing almost like oh it's an idealized thing but sublimity has a, a deeper tension in it because 
Zizek's using the word out of the Kantian Hegelian tradition, right? And then that's something I want to address, just not right now, because that takes us way far off path. But I do want to talk about the whole difference between Kantian sublime, Hegelian sublime. Oh, good. Down further on. Yeah, Um, I mean, because I mean, I've heard people already say things about the sublime or like, oh, you know, we'll we'll say that they disagree with your, you know, this point about the sublime object. Um, and it's like, I don't even understand the sublime object yet. So I hope that everybody, everybody knows, at least in this conversation, at this point in our conversations on Zizek, I don't know what the sublime object is. And I've read the goddamn book. So, um, and it's because the word sublime throws everybody off. Yeah. So That's we'll part of get, it. And, so and I'm all, okay. I'm also, I also just have a hard time remembering things when I've only read them once. But we'll we'll get you know we'll get to it. So here's the point. So okay, you have Kant and Hegel who have different concepts of the sublime, even though they're related. And then Lacan in seminar seven, which is one of Lacan's most famous seminars. This is the the seminar called the Ethics of Psychoanalysis. When it comes to his seminars, there's a basic agreement with Lacanians that the four most important ones are seven. 11, 17, and 20. Now, obviously other Lacanians will disagree, but if you ask most Lacanians, most of them will agree to that. Um, There's a lot of, I mean, entire books can be written on each of these seminars. 17, 11. 7, 7, 11, 17, 20. Now, here's here's why. 7 is really the... I mean, and look, he talks about jouissance from seven all the way up. I mean, I mean, he mentions it before, but with seven, he really enters in to his concept of jouissance as we know it. And so seven's really about jouissance, at least is how he was conceptualizing it at, at that point in his seminar. The uh, seminar 11, that's his four fundamental concepts. That's where he's talking about the unconscious and drive and transference and repetition. These key psychoanalytic, especially Lacanian concepts. And Seminar 11 is where he really, really, really starts to develop the concept of objet petit a in Seminar 11. So, I mean, roughly you could say Seminar 7, jouissance. Seminar 11, Objet petit a. And then Seminar 17, that's the four discourses. That's had a huge influence on people. Everything. And then Seminar 20 is where he does the graph of sexuation, the masculine position versus the feminine position. That's had huge influence on people. So those are really four, the four big ones, so to speak, as far as the ones that have had the most influence on thinkers and, and theorists. So the point, though, is in Seminar 7, this is where Lacan develops his concept of Das Ding. And this is another, like, I don't want to go into it now because it just it becomes <laughs> its own discussion. But again, suffice it to say, Das Ding can be interpreted as a forerunner to Objet Petit A. The question is, well, are they identical? Are they different? doesn't matter. Here's the point. He's thinking in terms of a position of sublimity. 
of, of the sublime position that, okay, retroactively, once we have been socialized, it's like, oh, there was something outside of law, outside of the social order that was this per, uh, you just permeated with jouissance, right? Now, the easy interpretation of Das Ding is it's the mother's body, right? So the child prior to language, that's a kind of symbiotic relationship with the mother, one characterized by immediate jouissance. Now, Zizek doesn't go for this reading. Most Lacanians don't go for this reading, even though the common wisdom is that Das Ding is the mother's body. Mm. What it actually is, is it's the empty space left behind once it, one has been integrated into the symbolic order. So what does this mean? It means that, of course, you're still around your mom once you've been socialized. Once you once you adopt language, law, social protocols, etc., your mom's still there. And so the point is, yeah, your mom is still there, but she she's not in the position of Das Ding. She's not in this position of sublime, excessive enjoyment right and so it's as if this incredibly pre-linguistic pre-social pre-conceptual intense sublime euphoric jouissance is not actually anything but an empty position yeah. but things can get put in this position this is like when you fantasize oh if I could just be with this person or whatever. This is what, for Lacan, sublimation is. And when I have to sublimate it into a different acceptable form of it, right? Like, that's not... We're not using sublimation in the typical way here. It just means the becoming sublime. The positioning of something in the sublime position of excessive enjoyment. The sublime Wait, object... Uh, the, oh, as, sorry, sorry. So sublimation is the is the positioning of something as an ordinary a, object. Could it is it does it just you know, so it's not just objects; it's also people or ideas. Right. It's basically any referent can be a, a, any referent can be positioned in the sublime position of das Ding, the thing. Right. It's even funny how when we talk about something that we repeat all the time, something that is a source of repetitive enjoyment, we call it our thing. Right. Right? It's a way of, like, we don't know what we're saying, but it's a, it's a weird, like, if you read it from a Lacanian perspective, it's like we're tapped into some sort of activity that is a source of enjoyment for us. And so... Um, is that when... Lacan when, defines... So, hold on. Is that, to, is that the same as to say that that's when it's got that it factor... Say that so again, like, you cut out. You, well, you oh. didn't cut out. It was just choppy. Oh, is that the same as to say it's got that it factor? Like like the in the phallus post? Yeah. The, the it factor, the it factor. Yes, it's got it. I don't know what it is about this person, but they have it, right? And so Lacan in Seminar 7 defines sublimation as raising an ordinary object to the dignity of the thing which is to say it's seeing a thing as permeated with excessive enjoyment right yep i'm following <laughs> 
Okay. So, okay. So here's the point. So when you think sublime, when we're talking in this context, you have to link it to extreme excessive jouissance. Okay. Now, this can be uh, this can be enticing to us, or it can also be absolutely reprehensible, worthy of hatred, utterly disgusting. So, on the one hand, if if something is positioned in the sublime position, we can go, oh, if I had that thing, if I could get hold of that thing, I would have full enjoyment. I would be whole, right? That's more of the enticing dimension of it. But it's just as easy to say, oh, see, I lack because that thing is hoarded all of the jouissance and it has an unfair monopoly on it. And it's it's selfish and it's stingy and it wants all the jouissance for itself. And so it gets to monopolize and concentrate all of the jouissance in itself, right? That's the sense uh, that the sublime object of ideology functions. You think, uh, you know, the Jew or, or, I mean, it, it can be anybody, but but his example is how the be, Jew functioned in Nazi Germany. It could be the SJW, right? Um, Honestly, yeah, it could be it, like for a lot of American conservatives right now. With I'm doing the cringe compilations and all of this, right? The SJW could, in their mind, be somebody of extreme enjoyment like they get an uh, an extreme excessive access to jouissance that the person on the right doesn't get to have the weird thing is simultaneously you can do the same thing like the trump supporter gets it gets to have you know a certain monopolistic relationship to jouissance because they get to be they do the racist shit and they do they transgress all the rules and there's a very strong sense in which we link transgression to access the jouissance. Lacan himself in seminar seven identifies like what is on the side of transgression. Like what, when you transgress the law, what do you get? You get jouissance. And so you can like two people, neither which have any privileged access to jouissance can both view each other as the one who has privileged access to jouissance for different reasons. Mm -hmm. So the SJW if say you're LGBTQ or you're a big supporter of LGBTQ, then somebody who's very conservative could say, "Oh, see, you're transgressing heteronormative standards. You get to have excessive enjoyment. You, you know, you get to do different things with gender or sexuality that m me as a you know heteronormative person I don't get to." So it's a what we're doing is people unconsciously calculate how much enjoyment somebody else gets. So, and then obviously somebody on the liberal left can do the same thing like I was talking about with somebody on the right. Oh, you transgress all of these basic laws we now have agreed on, therefore you have privileged access. And the point is neither one have any privileged access to enjoyment, but they think the other one has it. Okay. And, and obviously this isn't, I don't, I don't think that that's, so there's obviously people who are left or right who know the stereotype and know the stereotype is real, but also know people who break the stereotype don't get seduced so much by this imaginary. Well, here's the thing. I work with guys, men and women every day who are, some are conservative, some are liberal and they don't, I don't see this tendency in any of them. They don't do this to the other side. 
Right. Now, but I've met people in real life who do. So right. I'm not saying that doing this is baked into either position. I don't think it is. But what you find is that it can go like any any side is in a sense capable of this. Why? Because every symbolic position has its own. There are inconsistencies on the liberal left. There are inconsistencies on the conservative right. And the point is you can always obfuscate those inconsistencies with with some sublime object some something that has all that has monopolized all the enjoyment mm. cool but it's not necessarily the case that a conservative or a liberal is actually doing this okay that's that's a perfect i mean and here's the thing marxists can do this obviously fa i mean that's why zizek goes with nazi germany the greatest example of this are straight up like fascist social formations right. but the point is you could i don't whether it's marxist whether it's liberal whether it's conservative whether it's fascist whatever you can find this mechanism of scapegoating in all various forms of political identity right and it's not always like i don't know it, it, there might be an argument for it even um to some degree but that's you know something we'll get into later i want to say just I don't want to. I feel like you're still diving in here. So at some point, we're going to listen to the message Anne shared, uh, where she uh, catches us up to date in the mod chat. So um, the mod chat's just okay. the. It's a the mod chat is a position that people can get involved with. Uh, there's a meme gang going on. I don't know if anybody saw it on the meme reel, but you just got to email theoryplebe copypasta at gmail dot com and and get give it the answers that are the, the, the to the prompts on the on that what you've seen on the meme reel and i'm saying this for anybody who wants to get involved with like learning how to make videos and stuff like that because it's going to be the meme gang people who basically i'm developing these tutorials that will eventually be used by mikey anyway that's a quick little plug for that but if do you want to listen to that right now or do you want to say a few more things before we get into that well, I'll just I'll just say this real quick. So the whole point of the ideological scapegoat or the sublime object is that this object is a thief of enjoyment. And the theft of enjoyment is not something Lacan talked about. It's one of Zizek's own original ideas, one of his best. And for him, it's it's understanding why racial oppression or scapegoating, all of these things crop up in various forms of societies. And the theft of enjoyment is just what we were talking about, where you posit that some other thing has hoarded or monopolized all of the enjoyment in society. And that is what has caused all of the social problems. And that is the ideological mechanism is because first off this referent, whoever it is, doesn't have privileged access to jouissance. Second, even if they had some sort of privileged access to jouissance, which they don't have, they're still not the cause of all of the systemic structural problems of society. But that's the sublime object, this, this concentration of monopolized, stolen, threatening enjoyment is what covers over the gap in the symbolic order. So this is why jouissance or the real this i told you in the first lecture the book could 
it's called sublime object of ideology, but it could also be called the real of ideology or the jouissance. What conceals the gaps in the symbolic order is not actually some some false consciousness, which is to say a misunderstanding at the conceptual level. It's the positing of a sublime object, etc., has taken all my enjoyment. So it's jouissance, or how jouissance is phantasmatically posited within a that obfuscates the structural deadlock. All right, that makes sense. That's good. And so, so here's the thing. This is actually a good stopping point for the lecture, but I also could keep going because this is where we're going to pivot into a, a, I mean, I hope a brief discussion. I guess no, no discussion with us is brief, but this is where I pivot into talking about what Todd's going to do in his next book, The Politics of Enjoyment. And I was going to talk about the politics of enjoyment in general, but I mean, what do you think? I mean, on time. Yeah, I think that I, and by the way, this is going to be complicated, actually. Um, this is a perfect point to close out the stream for three reasons, and I don't even want to get into it. I think that what I want to say really quick, are you there? Are you there? Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Was there a delay? Yes. Okay, there was a delay. Well, that delay is part of the reason why I want to cut this out right now. The other reason is because I like the fact that you are able to feel in your gut that was so controversial for Lacan himself when he was fighting with the the psychoanalytic institute that felt right to him, which he thought he wants to end it right there. You need to be able to cut things off when it feels right. And that the idea of set time limits... You know, it comes from the this industrial age of capitalism. I don't think he ever gets into that, but there's a lot of reasons why it's the it's the it's the ruin of the schooling system, and I think yeah, feeling the and also my hotspot's dying. But really quick, I'm just gonna go ahead and play that message from Anne uh, that's in the WhatsApp. So Anne is our main the that that's just some random. Yeah, just kidding. No, actually, Anne really is here right now. Yeah, she brought me her phone because my phone's crapping out with its hotspot, and so she thought, you know, she would be a hero. But the thing is, we can cut this. We can basically finish right now. But we're just gonna play the message that you. Sh well, so I asked it like not that long ago. Also, I can't hear Michael right now. Okay, so Anne can't hear Michael right now. Anne doesn't have the headphones on because um, she just got here. And and then you can. And then I'll do another live okay. chat update. And then we'll close out by discussing whatever you've said. Okay, sounds good. Perfect. Okay, here we go. And all the people in the chat. This is a chat. Steve Clausen asked, like, uh, delusions on that. Um, what else? Brian's still here. Brian said this. Uh, building it for you if you didn't already have Chris. Oh, wow. Thanks, Steve. Um, oh, and Steve wants to know, where do I go to donate to this important campaign funded by people? And finally, anxiety of the spectacle asset. There you go. You have people in this chat, Steve Clausen and anxiety of the spectacle, who would love to help in ways that they can. And everyone else is here and giving their time and 
attention for the day on this Saturday. An amazing stream update. You're right. These are some really amazing people and uh, they want to help. And there's also a bunch of people in the stream who are... There are a few more things oh, after that update. Mikey says thanks. That I can bring us in the loop on. Um, oh, where'd it go? Theory Plebe updated us that any money sent to the following links in the next week will go to help Michael get an editing PC so he can make a video essay and you can send that via paypal.me slash theoryplebe plus or Venmo at theoryplebe. No, no one's done the Venmo yet, by the way, but uh, Bert, well, Bert Venmoed me some money, but that's just like, he just likes to send theoryplebe 50 bucks every month and so Bert's one of the best of them all. But anyway, here we go. We've got a couple people, DDD, Marvin, and uh, Deathcon, off to dinner. Enjoy your dinner. But also, DDD asked um, a little bit ago, I'd like to ask two things. Why do you both focus so highly on Heidegger? And two, why do you focus on Lacan? Is it to understand how people think, how society works in general, something else? And that's probably something you could address at a later date or time about your own backgrounds in theory and why you are interested in the people that you're interested in but can you define slash explain sublime in or sublimity or sublimation in the way it's used like non-theoretically and how slash if that relates like oh this chocolate cake is sublime i think that's a thing people say but then michael <laughs> explained it a little bit more and i thought oh maybe you don't have to because that kind of helps um Brian said, the way sublimity was taught to me in a class on the aesthetics of romanticism is that the sublime is the experience of terror with the caveat that you are never in real danger because it's art. I think this is the Kantian view, but I'm totally lost when connecting it to Zizek. So you've got some people wondering about what even the heck is sublime and sublimity, and I know you explained it, and so that helped me a little bit, but uh, that's where we're at. Oh my goodness! Thank you for that that rundown. Um, and now I know you can't. No, so this the problem is Mikey's going to feel like he can't just respond to anything that you just said. But Michael, what I'm going to do is let you close this out in whatever way you want. Um, and but I'm going to go ahead and just put you on because I don't I can't share my headphones with Anne very easily. So I'm just going to put you on speaker and mute myself for a minute to let you kind of respond to all of that and talk about what we'll talk about later and everything like that, and we'll close out. Okay. Okay. So, um, just want to say thanks to Stephen Clawson. That that's cool. Um, let me look through the chat here again. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Stephen got his question answered about Michael Heinrich book by. Illusional Bod Lacanian. Bod Lacanian. <clears throat> Let's see. It's Bode No, I haven't uh, been following Aaron Lewis. I'm... Yeah, I haven't been following Aaron Lewis. I'm I don't know who that is. Uh, does that make me a boomer? <laughs> um I appreciate the offer. Anxiety of the spectacle, it's really nice to offer. Um, let's see. Stephen Clawson then says, uh, he doesn't have a PayPal or Venmo right now, unfortunately. 
Um, glad you glad you're here for the long haul, Brian. Let's see. So triple D, that that's a big question. I mean, okay, briefly. For me, I think I, I was very much a Heideggerian at one point. Um, I wouldn't say I'm a Heideggerian now. I'm obviously some strange mixture of uh, Lacanian, Zizekian, Baudrillardian. But even though you probably haven't heard me talk much about Baudrillard, um, what I'll give Heidegger and Lacan is that I'm I'm primarily interested in subjectivity. What it what it means or what it is to be a human being. So Heidegger in being in time lays out an incredibly original theory of what it is to be human. Now he's going to go out of his way to not call us subjectivities. He calls us Dasein, which means it being there, but nevertheless, he's laying out an incredibly original ontology of Dasein or the human being that is different than anything that ever came before in the history of philosophy. I think Lacan ultimately is the greatest thinker of subjectivity that maybe has ever lived. I don't, I don't know of any theorist that is more nuanced when it comes to human subjectivity than Lacan. Of course, the debt to Freud is nearly infinite, right? Like it's, there's there's no Lacan without Freud and Freud's discovery of the unconscious. Nevertheless, I still think Lacan refined the concept of far beyond what Freud did. And so for both Heidegger and Lacan, that's why I think they're like I'm I'm so interested in them. I also think that their insights like Heidegger's insight into different modes of being, which is to say different pre-theoretical, ontological understandings of what it is to be. Right. Uh, incredibly important, right? Um, this leads into his work on inframing, his work on the work of art, right? So basically, I, I also the essay... Just, I just want to throw oh, in oh, there, I, because obviously people will always, you know, throw in like, you know... Uh, being unto death and anxiety is like really, really important concepts in his work. And you just touched on a bunch of other ones. And then, you know, there's all the stuff that he does on nihilism and the ways that he continues Nietzsche's project. But, um, you know, what he says about language. But for you and I alike, I mean, for us both, obviously, we do think about the origin of the work of art and what is metaphysics and the question concerning technology. We think about those in our, you know, we, 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 you know, they become reference in our, in the conversation that's in our head, basically. And you can't unsee them once, once you've, you know, it's still being in time. Yeah, but it's still being in time is where I was going with that thought exactly. And so the it's really and then even then it's basically division 1 and maybe the next couple chapters of division 2, but the fact is is this and for me Yeah, we we agree we don't like how it ends. We don't like how it ends. Um but the but it's not because people are like, not because oh his politics or whatever. Speaking of which, anxiety of the spectacle says that Aaron Lewis is super mega now cuz Aaron Lewis abstained. And so I don't fucking care. I don't give a shit. Like, I'm sorry. Uh, I don't, nothing an artist could possibly do. They could murder everybody in the world. And after doing despicable things to them, um, it doesn't, I literally, 
refuse to think about artists through this way where it's like that will quilt him differently for me. No, uh, Stained as an uh, as a band has a specific you know relation to my development in a, in a specific phase in my life, and so. There's, there's just nothing. I, I, do I keep up with this guy? No. Do I read the magazines that would even talk about this guy? No. I don't care. But, but I, at the same time, though, too bad. Sucks sucks to hear that. But anyway, but, you know, same with Heidegger. It's like, okay, so I don't think that you can so, so casually brush off Heidegger's politics as I just did Aaron Lewis's. Um, you know, I saw Aaron Lewis, like, live playing without his band stained and I cried and you know it was like wild I don't normally attend things where you sit down and watch something like that guy knows how to write he knows how to sing um and and the the quality of his music and of his and of his emotional journey that he takes people on is not something that in any way has any relation to like me and him as political as people in a world that you know is politically rife like you know and, and and how he's made sense of that experience or whatever. I didn't know nothing to do with it, but with Heidegger, it's okay. His politics for anyone who doesn't know, like the guy was the rector of was a Friedberg university or was a Frankfurt. Um, and he was, uh, and that was, uh, well, it required him to be a Nazi and he ended up, uh, well, he was one. And so it's one of those things where it's like, so should we just brush it aside? There is this part of me that used to just be like, I don't care if, if somebody wrote the greatest work in physics or mathematics, then I'm still going to read it. I don't care if they're, you know, whatever they are. So, but, but I do think that there are huge political ramifications, implications, insinuations throughout his work. I do think that it is important to kind of keep an eye on that. But I also think that you, you do yourself a tremendous disservice to not keep an eye on that and to actually get in touch with whatever is there because I, in the way that you just said Lacan is the greatest thinker of subjectivity, yeah, but he's also, he's on the back of a bunch of giants, including Descartes and Heidegger. And so his theory of subjectivity... And Sartre. And, yep. and, and Sartre. And his theory would not have been so good if he wasn't on the back of these giants. And the fact is, is what, it, what makes his theory so good is that it corrects for problems that other people like Nietzsche and Heidegger and Marx obsessed over but then also themselves internalized or reproduced or presupposed in various ways. And so, yeah, I, uh, I, I love the question. It's a good question. It's actually, I've had people, I've, I've had people in the live chat in the comment sections of videos, um, and elsewhere be like, what, what's with this Heidegger thing? And the best answer you could possibly ever get from me is besides everything you've already heard or reading my book, which obviously unpacks how I use Heidegger, um, would be the interview that I haven't dropped on you all yet with Professor Bruce Bierman, who teaches at Gonzaga University, who's the guy who got me into Heidegger and Marx in the first place, but also Kant and Kierkegaard and Nietzsche in the ways that I ended up getting into them. And honestly, after that interview I just had with he and Ann and I both interviewed him. This was Ann's first time meeting him. Um, I've, you know, I love, I love Bruce and you're all, I'm going to share this, uh, this entire uncut interview. It's like two and a half hours. I'm going to be sharing it on my channel within the next month. So just kind of keep posted for it. Make sure to subscribe at nsplebe.substack.com as well as nspublishing.substack.com because, uh, both of those, 
we'll give you updates about different kinds of things and eventually you will end up seeing some really cool stuff coming from those places once I actually add payment tiers but for the time being I'm still setting things up so give me a break but anyway that's where you would get alerted to the fact that um, this interview happened and be able to watch it but I think that he he, he he's a he's a Plato Aristotelian Heideggerian, Kierkegaardian, Nietzschean, Foucauldian, Marxist, anarchist, Christian. That's what he is. What does that mean? How is that even possible? Well, come find out because it's really not about an ideology that he subscribes to for many of these people. It's the fact that he is in dialogue with the greatest minds in the history that of the world. Obviously, uh, th there's other there's other there's other great minds and he's, you know, right now, for instance, taking a class in Eastern philosophy from one of the professors who's at Gonzaga. And he's talking about all the amazing stuff that's in there. He references that in the interview. But the thing is, this is where he focuses in on and people are always like, oh, well, it's Lacan said something that sounds kind of Buddhist or whatever. Yeah. Well, none of these guys are idiots, right? But what they kind of stay in their lane and they focus on the problems that we're experiencing right here, right now in the West, which is obviously related to the East. You know, we can obviously problematize this distinction in the first place. But you being in the West have internalized so much of the sort of background condition kind of meaning sense making interpretive hermeneutic frameworks presuppositions the kind of stuff that Heidegger's getting at in his critique of subjectivity and modernity and substance ontology in being in time. So uh, eventually we'll and by the way, I am the the Heideggerian Marxist Levinasian in this conversation and um, Mikey is obviously the Baudrillardian Zizekian Lacanian Marxist and so but you know I have a lot to learn from Michael he has a lot to learn from me but we both love being in time and Mikey knew being in time before I did but it was when I was really getting into it and, and Totality Infinity where I first really connected with Michael because as far like he was the only person who who could really engage at the level that helped me actually make sense of what I was working through. So, you know, Bierman got me turned on to it. Uh, Dr. Gardner really helped me work through uh, being in time. But, you know, it was it was ultimately my conversations with Michael that has brought so much of it into alignment where stuff, you know, is useful again. And so, yeah, thank you for obviously for doing that, Michael, it's been the fact that you were helping me back when I didn't know you, um, was awesome. You know, here, I just, and honestly, I, I, I kind of want to simplify what I said and what you said. Here's the thing. Why do we focus on Heidegger and Lacan? Well, first we, we would need to branch it out. We focus on Heidegger and Lacan and Baudrillard and Marx and Levinas. And it's funny you hear about, uh, maybe not so much anymore, but when I got into philosophy, there's this, oh, the continental analytic divide. You have analytic philosophers and continental philosophers. Obviously, the thinkers Dave and I are focused on are continental philosophers. But yeah. really, for me, it's just the thinkers you hear me talk about are the ones that really kind of blew my mind. And if analytic philosophers are the ones that blow your mind, God bless. That's awesome. Like, I don't, you don't see us. We're not, like, we don't. We don't bitch or complain about other, you know, any, you know, Donald Davidson or any of them. Okay. I just, I find that my 
philosophical questions that I was interested in when I first got into philosophy, those types of questions that I wanted to pursue are related in some way, shape, or form to this group of thinkers. And that, to me, yes, I think this group of thinkers have profound insights in what it is to be a human being, and they have profound insights into how society works. And so, yes, to answer your question, that's why, is I think this group have the most to offer on these sorts of questions. Right. And you still use the body without organs and the intensive, extensive, virtual, you know, like these Deleuzian and Deleuzian oh, yeah. about Tari. You, I, see, I, see you, I see you use them and I see you in dialogue with all of these other thinkers all the time. And a lot of people don't. In a lot of ways, you're arguing with them. But that's what I was saying about Lacan's theory of subjectivity being so profound because it corrects for the problems that Nietzsche, Kierkegaard, and Heidegger are focusing on. So this is no longer the modern subject. The like we're, we're, it's, well, like your teacher who is, uh, you know, Marxist, Nietzschean, Foucault, like you throw all these things out and people would go, well, those are inconsistent with each other. That's not the point. The point is that that's the space of philosophical dialogue that person's positioned in. So right. for me, Baudrillard, Lacan, Zizek, and by extension, Heidegger, Marx, Levinas, Marshall McLuhan, like uh, uh, Freud, yep. um, Hanna, Deleuze and Guattari, Mark Fisher, yep. Nick Land, like even, even with his shit, like uh, Derrida, like all of them are like influences in some way, shape or form. And so I find myself within this sprawling dialogue um, uh, uh, that's can, 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 can.